Ah, Joe, it's so nice. The fall's here. The leaves, in theory, are changing colors. Uh, the smell of uh, Thanksgiving turkeys already filling your nostrils. Ah, yes. Porters and stout filling the shelf. Finally, after the reign of pilsners can be put to an end. I see that we have very different uh, viewpoints on autumn. What, what do you mean? Well, I mean, I'm talking about Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah, yeah, like having Fireball and, and maybe some Coca-Cola by the by the fireside, that sort of thing. Hmm. You know what? I picked the perfect guy for digital noise. And welcome to Digital Noise. So excited to be here with Joe. Yeah, that's me, the Joe. The digital Joe. <laughs> the digital version of Joe. That's right. The Tron of Joe. I really am like Tron. <laughs> Are you now? Well, I kind of wrecked my motorcycle. Well, it wasn't my motorcycle. I don't want to talk about it. So that's Joe's deadly discs? Or wheels, as the case may be. Hey, look, I'm taking medication. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it. Uh, this week, Digital Noise, as it is every week, is brought to you by Audible.com. Audible.com, what do they do? Well, they do a shit ton, and I think that's the exact words they use on the website, a shit ton of uh, podcasts and books on tape, or I guess on... <laughs> yeah. We still see books on tape, even though those those don't exist outside of used stores anymore. Yeah. Books on Electron, folks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and magazines in Audible format and all sorts of stuff and tons of really good stuff. I've, I've promoted it before by listening to the one with Carrie Elwes uh, mm -hmm. doing his book about the making of The Princess Bride, which mm -hmm. is kind of a must listen to uh, but all sorts of stuff you can get uh, one of the th books I've been re recommending a lot lately Wool by Hugh Howey is on there whole tons of good stuff and always new things being added to the list uh, check them out do it by hitting our uh, our banner for it and you can get a free trial to uh, listen to one of them for free that's right if you have the audacity to listen to a book with your ears audible.com Nice. Uh, we also are sponsored by Amazon.com. Just we only get sponsored by sites that start with A. Yeah, well, uh, it's easier that way. <laughs> yeah, eventually we'll get to the Bs. Um, if you click on any of our links on the page, they will bring you to Amazon.com where you can buy that product and we get a kickback from it. But also, Christmas is around the corner. That's right. You know you're buying stuff on Amazon for your friends and family. If you click on any of those links. And go to Amazon through those. It doesn't matter what you end up buying. You can surf from that point on Amazon and find something else. As long as you buy something starting from one of our links, we get a kickback from that, too. And believe me, that makes a huge difference. It's like giving a Christmas gift to two parties at the same time. It kind of is. It's the nicest thing you can do for one of us.net. Other than becoming a subscriber, we really appreciate that too. Can't tell you how much it takes to just be able to use 98% of my time making this site keep running. Well, and considering my coke habit isn't going down anytime God soon. God damn it, Joe. It's so delicious. I'm not stopping. This website is off the rails, or on the rails <laughs> in Joe's case. Um, yeah, so anyway, let's go ahead and, now we've uh, done the house cleaning, let's go ahead and jump right into it with the reviews. reviews. And first up, we have the uh, alternate film to uh, <laughs> the Kurt Cobain story. What was the, the other one was, uh, what was the other big one that came out earlier this year? 
Oh yeah, uh, I don't know. Was was it also uh, based off of a Nirvana song? Uh, I I can't believe I'm forgetting the name of it right now. But there's another one that was actually, you know, produced in part by Courtney Love, and it has big expensive animators on it. And it's actually a really beautiful film. It is, and especially that one part where Courtney swoops in from from above and saves everybody, and the hey, children yeah. are fed. It was well, good. <laughs> When you watch it with a certain tinge of like, wait, Courtney Love produced this. That certainly part, that part of it <laughs> is hard not to think about. Which is a shame because it really is an extremely well made and touching film. But on the alternate viewpoint, you have Soaked in Bleach, uh, directed by Benjamin Statler, who co-wrote and pr- produced it. And uh, basically, it's a look at the death of Kurt Cobain, mainly seen through the perspective of Tom Grant, the private detective who had been hired by Courtney Love to find Cobain. Who has, who basically never stopped investigating and decided very shortly after everything that was going on, something's really fishy here. Yeah, he basically decided that Courtney Love is Machiavelli. <laughs> yeah, uh, which the movie makes no small takes you know no, presents a solid amount of evidence to that to that you know point. I mean, although not so much that she's Machiavelli as that the Seattle cops were just bumbling Keystone cops, (laughs) which even in this documentary, the head of the Seattle Police Department during the investigation comes in and said, we totally fucked up this investigation. We fucked it up in every way. Well, and it's (laughs) kind of telling that uh, it's parentheses retired police chief. So he's already got his fat pension. Yeah, yeah. He has no one else to answer to at this (laughs) point. So he's like, fuck it. I'll just say it. Yeah, we fucked it up. Uh, This is, of course, kind of a companion piece to the film Curtain Courtney, which came mm-hmm. out about, what, 10 years ago or something like yeah. that, which was much the same type of thing, only, like, this one feels a little more, well, it's a little, it's obviously a little bit bigger of a budget, uh, as they've mm-hmm. actually hired real actors to play out docudrama parts of it. Well, what? I thought Kurt and Courtney, uh, Gary Oldman played Kurt Cobain. Wasn't that the mm-hmm. thing? No, no, no. You're thinking of Sid and Nancy. Who? Josh. <laughs> um... But this actually is a good companion piece to it because they both present different pieces of evidence. Like, this completely leaves out things I thought were pretty big mm-hmm. stuff, pretty big things from Kurt and Courtney, and f- focuses more on things that just seem a little more. They were definitely Stranger, yeah. Yeah, all sorts of stuff. And I know people out there get really heated at, like, you know, bringing all this up again. Oh, it's just a conspiracy theory, whatever. It's like, you know what? I hate to tell you, but every murder that's not currently solved and is, you know, ends up a cold case and you think someone did it, that's a conspiracy theory in the same sense. Yeah, they even, they even go about defining what a conspiracy is. Yeah, they do. They go through it. That, like saying, like, if you want to just write this off with by just throwing the word conspiracy at it, well, here's why you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um... But all sorts of interesting people in here, uh, even the the former president of the American Academy of Forensic Sciences calls bullshit on the case. Yeah, a fair amount of of legit people. (laughs) (laughs) And it's hard not to be kind of angry by the end of the thing. I mean, more so even at the Seattle Police Police Department than you are at Courtney Love specifically. Right, because there's nothing explicit saying Courtney Love orchestrated it, but there is plenty of... uh, you, you know, guys, if you just did your job, there'd be less questions. Yeah, now. it's more focused on how could this possibly have been a suicide than look at all this evidence that suggests Courtney did it. Mm-hmm. You know, which I think is the main difference between Kurt and Courtney in this. Where right. this is like really like the first thing you need to do is prove that he didn't kill himself, and then you take it to the next step. Right. And this is more let's prove that he didn't kill himself. And 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 then uh, Kurt, Courtney's ex boyfriend Callie, he's the Cato Kalen. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, like, Jesus, she had so many ex-boyfriends and people she was cheating on him with at the time. Yeah. So, uh, but, like, there was all sorts of stuff, like the idea that, like, he killed himself because of his nonstop stomach pain, which was very famous. Right. Well, he was on record months beforehand saying, I'm actually on treatment now and I haven't had pain in months. I actually yeah. feel better than I ever have in my whole life. Like, days beforehand, he was telling friends that he thinks this is, like, the he's... He's at the best he's ever been and was really excited about working on the new record. And it's like, and then even the suicide note where you're like, okay, so most of it feels like uh, a letter to the fans. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden at the end where it drastically changes handwriting style, it becomes a suicide note in the last couple sentences. (laughs) Courtney is the best. And Francis Bean. Uh, Yeah, I mean, there's certainly... Like I mean, if you look on like a, a like a Rotten Tomatoes or Metacritic, apparently, like there was a period that there were a bunch of people on Courtney's camp that were intentionally giving it bottom reviews to try and oh. sabotage it, and she was sending out personal notes to various magazines saying, "Please give this no coverage" and stuff like that. And it's does, like, does she have cachet anymore? Like, does she have any? I, I can't understand why anyone ever gave her, took her I don't seriously. Either. I mean, she is like so the reincarnation of Nancy Spungen. It's ridiculous. Yeah, that, <laughs> that that one Family Guy bit where what if Kurt had lived? And oh, you know my wife Courtney? Who? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but either way, I really think that actually uh, Soaked in Bleach is really worth your time. Really worth seeing. Uh, well done documentary. With lots of fascinating stuff. Just about the forensic process alone. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah it's not nutty. Uh, so I know you didn't get a chance to watch Portlandia Season 5. I didn't even get a chance to watch Portlandia Season 5. But basically just to tell you guys, hey, it's Portlandia <laughs> Season 5. I, I, you've seen Portlandia before, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, it's a cute show, although it's funny how little of it seems like it necessarily ha- has to be in Portland anymore. No, well, I, I, I think the hipster scourge has uh, uh, reached maximum saturation around uh, the United States. So. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, but, uh... I, I've, it tends to be now where the whole episode is just one sketch, mm. you know, where it's just, this is just our, we're just going through the whole. Which, yeah, because they've got so many characters, that's a smart move, because otherwise it just gets, like, I found it annoying around season three. I'm just like, ugh. <laughs> but uh, I always enjoy Fred Armisen in, in a dress, so. Well, he which doesn't. he pretty much all always is in these. It's like, <laughs> when is he going to come out as an actual transvestite? Because clearly this is kind of <laughs> his thing. He looks good in them. What can you say? So, yeah, I found, I, I'm fair. And I'm worth it. You know, he's an old punk rocker. Mm-hmm. I do. Yeah, I listened to him on uh, Mark Marin, and I was like, Jesus Christ! He was like there back in the day, hanging out in the in the in the trenches with all of us. Well, he's he's no Craig Ferguson. Let's just put that out there right now. <laughs> I said it. Craig Ferguson is an old punk too. That's he true. is. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I found that Portlandia is one of those shows that I enjoy, but I can't marathon through yeah yeah that's what that's what i'm saying it, it just like after a while it gets grating like you I, watch uh, one every once in a while and you go well oh, that was cute and then you don't watch another one <laughs> for another week or two <laughs> but uh portlandia season five now out on dvd you can catch it watch it or don't next up is me and earl and the dying girl the most uh rhyming film this year about them titties. <laughs> is it about them titties? <laughs> well, I, I think that was by far the the, the best uh, tagline of that movie is, is when Earl would just say, you know it's about them titties. <laughs> and uh, I feel like this movie needed more Earl. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Earl was, was fantastic. My favorite thing about this film. Yes. And he just kind of is given the, like... Window treatment? Yeah, yeah. Pretty much. It's like surprised he's even in the title. But the story here is about Greg Gaines, played by Thomas Mann, high school senior, kind of one of those guys as he says, hey, I managed to not be beaten up by being a little bit of friends with everybody, every group, but not being good friends with any one group. So I can't be associated <laughs> with anybody enough for anybody else to hate me. It's like, this is kind of how I did high school, too, so I could identify with that as well. Uh, but at the same time, he's just kind of a drifter through life. His one fr- friend, Earl, they're obsessed with making, like weird pun titled re- sort of remakes of famous <laughs> movies which is the best part of this movie kind of is like let's looking at all their titles of the, their, yeah. their movie parodies that they made even though I don't think I'd actually sit through any of the movies I'm, yeah I'm surprised uh, they're, they're, they didn't do a bunch of them and then just release them as content as, as bonus content or yeah. something yeah huh? I'm glad they did <laughs> <laughs> uh, but his mom tells him that look the student who and uh, at your school Rachel played by Olivia Cook she's got leukemia and uh, we really need you to go and be her friend and he's like <laughs> I'm really bad at that uh, and strangely enough they do in fact hit it off sort of in a backwards sort of way as friends. Yeah, yeah. I think they're their mutual alienation. One self imposed, one through through uh illness, just kinda they find a, a meeting point. And of course this is one of those like really bittersweet type films is like first you're like oh yeah this is great this is friendship and it's actually kind of fun and you're enjoying mm-hmm. it and then it gets really kind of depressing and then you're like hey the opening titles flat out lied to us <laughs> yeah. about what happened in this film which is weird because the book this is based on doesn't do anything like that yeah i the the, the second time they lied i was like oh okay they're lying <laughs> Which I thought was a really weird tact. It really I was. I could not figure out what the reasoning was with that, except just trying to kind of be a dick. I think so. <laughs> you know, it was like, oh, okay. So this way you, you'll actually see the film. Uh, I don't know. I, I thought overall this is a decent little film. It's It certainly has that sort of like... <sighs> indie filmmaker vibe to it with lots of like um, little flights of fancy visual sequences that mm-hmm. happen when the character is narrating that are kind of fun to watch. But uh, And I know the book was a, kind of a sensation this yeah. was based on, apparently. I, I've not actually read the book, only read about it or and heard about it from other people. I think in the by the end of this, I still kind of felt like this was just kind of a piece of fluff. Oh, absolutely. Well, I, I felt that because of the end, I was like, oh, this is this. none of this really mattered. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I mean... I, I realize it's supposed to be one of those, and then they learned something. But I never really felt like they learned mm, anything. Nope. <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> did not. That's not a sensation I got from me and Earl and the Dying Girl. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this is really directed at teenagers, and like you know, cancer is the new vampire. Ooh. Apparently, is it? Uh, that's what I'm told. And so like, there's going to be a sequel. <laughs> no, in Teen Lit, that's like all the thing right now. It's like like in all the books that used to be supernatural, like doomed love stories. Now it's mm-hmm. cancer doomed love stories. Oh, I like see. Like the Fault in Our Stars. Was oh, the same okay, way, all right, right. You know? It was yeah. like, oh, that's a big thing right now, which is wildly morbid to me. I don't, I don't understand <laughs> why are with these kids thinking about mortality to this degree. Well, the kids these days aren't really big on long term relationships, so it's perfect. 
Because then nobody's the bad guy. <laughs> uh, I suppose that's true. Uh, you've got Nick Offerman in here as well, who sadly, once again, is in a movie where he is not given a heck of a lot to do. No, and, it, and it's kind of puzzling because they really could have just had anybody in that role. Yeah, I mean, he plays uh, uh, Greg's dad with Connie Britton as her mom, also very big talent. Yep, Nashville's very, Connie Britton. Very little do. Molly Shannon, who's popped up in a lot lately because apparently she is... One of the nicest people in Hollywood, from what I hear, and huh. has built up a strong amount of goodwill among other people who are kind of like feel bad that she was a genuine talent at Saturday Night Live who never really got the shot to move into film. Yeah, because Superstar like, wasn't exactly like almost every woman that was on Saturday Night Live <laughs> in the pre Tina Day, Tina Fey, Amy Poehler days. <laughs> well, I'd just like to personally extend an invitation to Molly to come on down to Austin and and uh, be on one of us, and we'll treat you right. Okay, sure, why not? Dude, if you don't throw it out there, they're never going to know. Yeah, double toasted got Steve-O, so you never know. Let's go for Molly. <laughs> I'd rather have Molly, personally. <laughs> <laughs> As a choice between Molly or Steve-O, I'd have something to say to Molly or Steve-O. I'd be like, so... Stuff up butts, you, right? You, you kind of right? you, you do stupid shit for a living. <laughs> That's cool, I guess. Which I guess kind of we do, too. So. Well, yeah. Yeah, whatever. With less stuff up butts, or more. I haven't taken a pull yet. Definitely less, for the record. Uh, next up is Happyish, the one and only season of the show that was originally supposed to star Philip Seymour Hoffman. And then oh, he, I didn't know that was the, the th- back. This was the one that he was going to be the star of, and then he died. I think they had just shot the pilot, and that was it. Uh, but they recast it with Steve Coogan, who actually seemed like a good alternate choice for this role. Yeah, uh, yeah. now knowing about the, the Philip Seymour Hoffman's... Uh Different direction, but it works. Yeah, I mean, so. like, like the fact that like Philip Seymour often killed himself, and the script about this guy who's probably two seconds away from killing himself at any <laughs> given day, you're like, maybe that was the wrong show for him to be memorizing lines for. I'm not saying it caused it, but, it. but that being said, uh, I actually really thoroughly enjoyed Happyish myself. I thought it was that like a kind of brilliant that usually don't get to see on television because it's so angry and actually kind of has something to say. Obviously, it was not everybody's cup of tea since it was canceled after one season. But, you know, it's you know that's that's kind of the Showtime curse. I think that uh, they're, Show- willing, they're willing to take more risks, but... But it doesn't always work. Right. And then they have those shows that go on forever that you don't even hear of until, like, the sixth season. <laughs> You're yeah. like, what the fuck is that? There's that one with, uh, what's his name, from William Macy in it, where it looks like it's all a bunch of rednecks or something. Oh, I forgot he was in something yeah, still. Yeah, and, and I was like, that's on, like, season six now. And you were like, I just heard about that, like, a few months ago. I was huh. like, how did I miss that? Anyway, uh, here, uh, Steve Coogan plays Tom Payne, who is a, uh ad executive uh, who is kind of depressed most of the time. Partially because there's all these new, young, really full of shit bosses at his job who are trying to change the way everything works. Good thing I've are, never experienced that. Are kind of incompetent and, and useless. <laughs> and he's just so angry at everything, uh, and including himself. And his, the, the best he can come with happiness is through his family with his wife, Catherine Hahn, who's such, I think, really come really coming into her own now as a actress, you know, hmm. going from stand-up comedian to actress. And this is actually my favorite thing I've seen her in, uh, where she herself is going through her own stuff. She's an artist who's trying to balance being an artist, trying to do that, and being a mom. I think what I liked about this uh, the most was it's just so goddamn acerbic. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's kind of... 
it's like if Arrested Development and Mad Men had a baby together. Yeah, uh, I definitely <laughs> like that there's more teeth to it. Yeah. Which, a lot of times, uh, in, trying, in trying to walk that line, they usually drop something. Yeah. So. And I think that, like, maybe this is... I think this was really directed at older people, and I think that maybe that's one of the reasons a lot of this didn't catch up. I heard one, a couple of critics called it shrill, and I was like, <laughs> okay, you're 20-something. You don't want to hear, like... The, the words that tend to come out of 40 to 50-somethings-year-olds when thinking about life and what they fucked up along the way. Right. <laughs> and by the way, pal, you're fucking up as we speak. <laughs> you Believe me, you don't know it now. <laughs> but boy, you're going to be like, wow, that was that was quite a ride of uh, fuckitude. What was I thinking? <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I still think that even though it's just one season, it doesn't end on a cliffhanger or anything. It comes to kind of a a nice enough conclusion that this yeah, is no smoking gun. Yeah, yeah. This is one of those things I'd say it's worth still sitting down and watching without without really being having to be like, God damn it, I, you'll never know what happens next. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 nice in that it's one of those like eh, you can watch it every few years and it won't make oh man I need more. You just it's a uh, it's an amuse bouche of a series. I was it is interesting. Ken Quapis worked on a lot of this right here, uh, who is definitely a better known director for stuff like uh, uh, Sesame Street presents Follow That Bird. This is Dirt of the Traveling Pants, and he's just not in that into you. But here he's actually doing good work. <laughs> I love this whole running thing where like Steve Coogan is having imaginary conversations with the Keebler elves, and even has flat out graphic sex with Grandma Keebler elf at one point, which is really disturbing. <laughs> if you want to look at it that way, or a beautiful display of sexuality. I suppose that could be true too. Next up is Hidden, uh, the a weird apocalypse film. Yeah. Ooh, I, I really wanted it to be better. Uh, it's one of those things, it's a good idea mm-hmm. with a wah-wah of a twist. <laughs> <laughs> At the end where you're just like, no, just go fuck yourself. Not even angrily, just like, no, yeah. buddy, just get lost. It's a shame because this is a really well-acted, mm-hmm. good-looking uh, for, for all its din- dinginess, uh, mm-hmm. apocalypse film with this family: uh, Alexander Skarsgård playing the dad, uh, Andrea Riseborough playing the mom, and their little daughter Zoe, who are li- living in an abandoned fallout shelter underneath a school. And apparently, there was some kind of catastrophe, and it made people into monsters. And they're basically in there hiding from the monsters and slowly but surely running out of food. Right. And largely it's this sort of family dynamic during this, you know, and what what's going to happen. It's kind of the roadish in its own way, but yeah. set in one location. Because it's more focusing on how they don't lose their fucking minds. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. How they which, stay sane. Which is this. always, a in, in that kind of situation, a question in my mind. Like, how are they not going crazy? And yeah. It, it really did address it. It's funny, I was actually just, and this is a little off topic, but I was just uh, seeing a thing, I think it was through Elon Musk's company, Big Shocker, there, that mm. they're putting out basically a uh, cycle treadmill that if you use an hour a day would power your whole house for 24 hours. And I was like, so what, Apocalypse? <laughs> <laughs> You're getting finger guns right here. <laughs> you bring it, baby, and I'm going to be trim, too. That's right, <laughs> trim and great. still playing my PS4. Yeah. Right. It's like, honey, will you get on the bike for a minute? I have to save, and the power's almost out. But for some reason, I don't want to play Fallout 4 anymore. 
<laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> no, I think I'd still want to play Fallout 4. Okay. God All right. damn it. <laughs> I want it so bad. <laughs> so one of those games I've resigned myself to. Well, I'll see you in a year or two when you drop down to $30 or so. <laughs> oh, well. Uh, anyway, yeah, I mean, I think the, the strongest thing about this is the performances. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, and it's a shame that it doesn't have a better ending because you're really excited for these people to survive and find a way out of their dilemma and then when it's just kind of a twilight zone yeah. twist it was like oh, okay oh I no guess. my glasses i seem <laughs> i i i mean i get it i mean it's not like where you go oh that doesn't seem like like where you go that doesn't seem possible but it's just kind of stupid yeah it makes sense it just makes uh boring sense just yeah. like, oh brother yeah i think that was it so anyway it was one of those films the direction was was good enough here matt duffer and ross duffer made this i would gladly watch something else from yeah them. i'll check it out but, uh you know maybe get another pass through with the writing part <laughs> get dalton trumbo on it uh now you didn't get to watch ascension nope and that was because i was kind enough to keep that from you oh thanks yeah sure uh ascension is a miniseries that aired on uh, the Sci-Fi Channel, which should tell you a lot right there. Mm-hmm. The basic idea is, and this is, it's actually a solid idea that is so poorly acted throughout. Like, it's just the worst acting. And that's for the Sci-Fi Channel. Oh, that man. it's just like, God damn it, man, if you just like, this is, I could see this being really good. So is it like a Mansquito series? Is that what you're saying? No, no, because that's just dumb. Oh. You know, this is actually kind of a cool idea, which is that uh, basically in the 60s, after we landed a man on the moon, apparently, you know, keeping it from the Russians, our technology was actually a lot more advanced than we were letting on. Mm-hmm. And we, in fact, sent a a uh, ship, high, high, even higher powered ship, out to like where Alpha Centauri or something, the next habitable series right. of worlds, with a a bunch of people knowing they wouldn't make it, but their descendants would in like three or four generations. Mm-hmm. And the whole thing is set up like a completely sustainable community in and of itself. So when we get to this, it's modern day, and it's already like a generation and a half past, and it flashes back and forth between us on planet Earth and what's going on here, and people inside the ship, as apparently there's uh, a murderer who's killing people and leaving messages on the wall that say no future space murder <laughs> and leave and is setting bombs and you're like okay this is an interesting setup actually and then there's this giant twist about halfway through this this was it like three episode series i think it was because uh, it's not really all that long um and the twist isn't that annoying it's just like Okay, I kind of figured something like that because my only problem with this it was like eh, I don't think scientifically a large part of this was that plausible mm-hmm. considering. Uh, but so I'm like, okay, I have no problem with that. But then the whole thing just kind of goes out on a whimper. No. It's like so this isn't a continuing television show. It's like no, this is just a miniseries. I was like, y- and this was all you <laughs> planned. This was the extent of it. <laughs> That's how you ended. I mean, it really felt like the start of a show, not like. A complete miniseries is very like okay then if you say so why did you waste all that time developing all these characters who aren't even vaguely important and have nothing to do other than to maybe create red herrings it just, so in other words what you're telling me was they spent uh, Alpha's money on this uh, yeah well <laughs> god damn it fucking sci-fi channel you cancel one of the best shows you had yep uh, it was it was there it was like the, the it was an X-Men TV show, basically, that, you know... That really worked. 
And I love that it was set in the same universe as Warehouse 13 and uh, yeah. and Eureka, both two, two of the other success stories that they had until they canceled <laughs> they shit them on. too. Uh, but this has Trisha Helfer as one of the leads in here. Is this um, the, the wife of the captain who's fucking everybody else as well? No, who's, okay. Who's basically a madam? Uh, you know, they never say it, but that's what she is. You know, she's she's got all these hot women who work for her who go out and do her bidding and sleep mm. with rich and powerful people on the yeah, ship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. House uh, cleaning, right. And she's really the only notable actor on this whole fucking thing. Everybody else is like people you've seen on TV shows and stuff before. Like Gil Bellows. Weren't terribly rem- memorable, mm. and they're doing equally a bad job here. Um, it's just one of those things that where you're like, the script isn't that bad. But you got, it felt like you had to rush it into production, otherwise it wasn't going to get made. That's mm-hmm. what it felt like. Because, oh, like, like, poor casting, really poor production value, uh, uh, you know, and the the whole, like, why is this over in three episodes instead of going on for, a, you know, it should have been, you feel like this is a six-episode type thing. Mm-hmm. You're like, three episodes? Really? Okay. Not that I was like, of course, I'm, one of the, I'm a gourmand. I'm like, this is terrible. Yes, in such small portions. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, either way, Ascension was a almost ran, to be sure. Uh, what wasn't an almost ran was the man who shot Liberty Valance. Well, that's right. Considered to be one of the greatest westerns ever made. For a goddamn good reason. And uh, certainly one of the, really one of the first really notable of the sort of meta westerns where it was mm-hmm. really talking about like is this okay that we live like this isn't <laughs> yeah. this not good that we live with violence you know i mean this was not a topic that generally came up in westerns and well no because then you'd be a, a sissy commie or something not 1962 but this was a uh, jimmy stewart and john wayne working together uh and it holds up completely today oh absolutely uh, Jimmy Stewart in the beginning we see him as a Senator Ransom Stoddard where he and his wife uh, Hallie played by Vera, Vera Miles uh, show up in this tiny little town of Shinbone to attend the funeral that no one seems to know is even going on in the town this guy Tom Donovan played by John Wayne and and then again, you know reporters like oh my god the senator's here tell us and so he goes oh you want to know why I'm here I'll tell you why I'm here yeah. and it goes back to the story of why he's there. What I did find cute was apparently reporters are all powerful and have no jurisdiction. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Thirty they go thirty thirty years later where he first arrives as a young attorney uh, and he's robbed by Lee Marvin who is Liberty Valance and his gang. Uh, who really just kind of beats the, the shit out of him and and uh, leaves him for dead? But uh, he comes back to town. And is like, no, I'm gonna make it. I'm gonna make it work. He's ultimate idealist. Glass is half full, even if it's half has to be half full of whiskey. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and he meets uh, John Wayne's character, who's like you know also kind of an old school guy, the way Lee, old west guy. But he's an old west hero type guy, right. like a, archetype. And really, this is kind of. In and of itself, it's a commentary on westerns and the characters that John Wayne and Lee Marvin have already played in, but yeah, in before. Yeah, I mean, what's 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 interesting is that John Wayne is not the protagonist in this. And, no, and his actions as John Wayne as they are are not. There's no indication like this is the way it should be. No, no. In fact, everything about it is kind of this movie's about the death of the West. You know, yeah, that's fair. Um, and why it had to die, and why the you know, in in some levels, like the the characters, like the hero, like went 
gently into that good night, as it were. <laughs> <laughs> Once it was pointed out to them that they were uh, irrelevant. Yes, your in, services are no longer needed. In this new world. Uh, it was funny, is Edmund O'Brien playing the drunk newspaper guy? Yes. One of the highlights of this film, by far. <laughs> He's so fucking funny in it. Uh, it's just... Like I said, this is just a, a really involving, well-acted, well-written film uh, that it, I think is, if you want to understand the Western at all, this is essential viewing on that list. Well, and, and it's star-studded. Uh, you know, you got a baby Lee Van Cleef and, yeah, and Struther. It took me a minute uh, where well, I was like, wait a minute, is that Lee Van Cleef? Yep. <laughs> and uh, Struther Martin. Yeah. 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 Uh, uh, and uh, oh, what's his name? Uh, the guy who's kind of like the the the, uh, the sheriff who's completely useless. Uh, oh, I'm oh, blanking boy. on his name. Uh, damn it! What is his name? <laughs> it's killing me. Oh, Andy Devine. Yes. Uh, who's oh, well, oh, you guys? <laughs> well, I'll take you out there, but I sure won't try to rape you. Why did you say that? <laughs> he's he's actually he had this very distinctive voice that apparently came from an accident when he was a kid. So there's actually something wrong with his throat that made oh, him sound well, that way. Then you're way. horrible for making that impersonation. I uh, know. Well, he's dead now, so it's not like they're going to have the the uh, uh, Andy Divine Anti Defamation League is going to jump after me at this point. <laughs> or I hope not. Jeez. Uh, yeah, and this is a beautiful looking title. Mm-hmm. Uh, they definitely did a great job with the upgrade to this. Uh, no extra features, as it were, but hey, come on, you know. What I mean? But it, that was also one of the great things. You pop it in, and it's 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 straight to the point. There's not a, a million previews on it. Oh yeah, and Woody Strode, I forgot as well. One of the great black actors of the oh, time. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And there is John Wayne's best friend and ranch hand, who's also really good. At best this. friend and uh, um, employee. <laughs> yeah, well, you no, know, he is literally yeah. an employee. No, no, that's what I'm saying. Like he's not that other thing now. Cause... Yeah, yeah, no, no, we're past that. All right, so moving on to TV show Wayward Pines. Wayward Pines. Uh, this is all right. Now, don't get scared off. Okay. This is executive produced by M Night Shyamalan. Uh, I'm already getting no, fidgety. no, no, no. It's okay. It's gonna be okay, Joe. I well, you say it's okay, but then you're gonna do a switcheroo on me, and it's gonna spit on my brain because it was so simple, right? Well, yes and no. Uh, like, what if? In, like, the third episode, we just go ahead and explain to you everything that's going on and then just, just take it from there. But but there's more after that? Yeah. Hmm. The real story doesn't really start till then. Does that sound not so bad? Uh, it sounds better. Yeah. But- <laughs> well, the story here is Matt Dillon is Ethan Burke. There's a hero name if there ever was one. Uh, he's a U.S. Secret Service agent who is investigating two of his fellow agents who've, missed, uh, who've disappeared in Wayward Pines, Idaho. And he gets in a car accident, wakes up uh, in this tiny, weird, little, very The Prisoner-style town. <laughs> you know, and no one will let him leave. He can't make an outside call. Everyone's like, no, you can't talk about anything outside. So it starts off feeling like an M. Night Shyamalan piece where you're right. like, okay, Love we're going to have to drag this out till the fucking end. But... Honestly, one of the pleasures is they get to the point so quickly where it's like, okay, here's what's really going on, and now what do you do? <laughs> and the setup is indeed when they reveal what's happening, and it's not just the wah-wah ending. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, well, this is actually an interesting kind of starting point to say, okay, so what do you do from here? Creating a sort of cross between like the 100 and the prisoner, really, you know? Yeah, and that part where they uh, hit Bryce Dallas Howard in the face with a hammer, that was so good. Wait, what? That oh maybe I just wanted that to happen. In the village. <laughs> uh, Carla uh, Gu- Gugino. Gugino 
plays his former lover, who is one of the two agents who's disappeared there, who right when he gets there, he finds her. She mysteriously hasn't aged at all, despite the fact she's she's been... Uh, or no, I'm sorry, quite the opposite. She's mysteriously aged quite a bit. Mm. Uh, and she pretends like she doesn't know him, and he's like, what's going on here? Terrence Howard is the kind of fascist sheriff who's there, who won't brook any dissent. Toby Jones is a scientist... Uh, and doctor in the town. I always love seeing Toby Jones almost anything. Shannon Sossaman plays uh, Ethan's wife. Uh, Juliet Lewis has a small role as a bartender. Melissa Leo is kind of a... You're not never really sure what she is, even by the end, whether to hmm. call her a, like a villain or a... Uh, you know, a redeemed villain or, or what? I mean, everything when you find out what's going on kind of casts everything in a very different Maybe light. Maybe she's just a person. She's just a person. Uh, Hope Davis is in this. I don't know. I actually genuinely enjoyed this thing. The the the, the download link didn't work for me. Did so it not work know. at all? No. Oh shit! We'll have to send them a message say that didn't fucking work. I actually watched this as it was airing. Um, yeah, I think it's worth your time. It's it is all three of the books for the record uh, that were published. It's based on a book series. Much like Wool was one of those things that was released independently and then was such a huge hit, they after the fact released them as novels. Hmm. Um, I, I have not read the books, but I read the I went online, looked at the descriptions of all of them. It's like, yep, this is all three of the books. <laughs> it ends where the third book ends, more or less, on a big fucking cliffhanger of an ending, um, which is surprising considering they're like, yeah, as far as we know, we're not making any more. We just we made the books, and you're huh. like. Yeah, but you also made a TV show <laughs> that ends on a, you know, okay, so what happens next? So I, and now apparently there's a lot of, well, are we going to do another? Are we not? Apparently they filmed this a while ago, so the actors. So they're all was, committed somewhere else. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Everybody's all committed somewhere else, and it's like, I don't really know how we could do another one. And I'm like, well, honestly, you kind of set this up in a way that you don't need most of the actors back. Oh. You could go on and continue the story with only two or three of them and keep going. How about this? The, the the two or three that keep going go off to this far off land where there's this bald kid who does martial arts and then stuff bends. I like it. Yeah. Someone should, should write something like they that. Should. <laughs> uh, next up is Matchstick Man. Um, all right, I'm going to say it. This is a movie when I originally saw this Ridley Scott film in 2002. I mm-hmm. did not like it. Okay. Did not like it at all. I was very irritated by the way I thought it was kind of an emotional smack in the face uh, in its con movie twist. I was like, seriously? Um, <laughs> but now on rewatching it, I actually kind of liked it. Yeah, uh, I've got a couple of friends with severe Tourette's, uh, and from what I've, uh, from what they've said, this is the best representation of what it's like to have Tourette's. Dude, Nicholas Cage acts like he has Tourette's all the time. Yeah, so this then, is then just he just bumped up it up a little bit. Yeah, move it to a, the dial to eleven on Nicholas Cage is all they did. But that out of the way, uh, yeah, it, it was one of those things. Like, oh yeah, I remembered when there were times where I could like Nicholas Cage. Yeah, and, <laughs> and this is one of those times. I think it's still a bit too much of a performance on his part. I mm-hmm. think he amps it up a bit too high, but, I mean, that's always been Nicolas Cage's problem. And, and what's funny is that uh, Rockwell, you know, he's he's always Sam been Rockwell. good, but, but I think he wasn't quite as refined as he's become. Yeah, I agree with that. This was a little bit earlier in his career, and plus, he, even though he's 
you know, one of the major characters in this film, he's still not given an awful lot to do that you see on screen. (laughs) No, not at all. Uh, The idea is Nick Cage is a con artist who works with Sam Rockwell, who's kind of the new up-and-coming, his protege guy, uh, who's always trying to get him to take on the bigger con, to go for the bigger one. Nick Cage is like, no, that's how you get caught, is doing the big con. (laughs) We've seen this plot before. (laughs) That's right. We we offer uh, small cons for, for a better quantity. But the problem is Nick Cage's character, Roy, has, like, really bad... I don't know if it's Tourette's. It's something like Tourette's, where mm. he's like really bad, like ticks, and has to like a OCD open and close everything three times. And uh, he's having more and more terrible and violent panic attacks. And he goes at his partner's suggestion to see a psychiatrist played by Bruce Altman, who gives him new pills. And in fact, uh, through this whole scenario, he finds out that his ex-wife. Uh, who he knew was pregnant at the time of the divorce uh, when they got divorced years ago, uh, 14 years ago, in fact gave birth to a daughter. And uh, he's starting to think, like, well, maybe I want to connect with this girl. And through his doctor, says, well, can you? I can't do it. Will you contact her and say I want to make contact? The daughter wants to make contact. And so uh, Allison Lohman plays the daughter, who's just adorable little bundle of energy, who basically is constantly fighting with her mom and uh, gets to stay, start staying over at his house a lot, which is awkward for him since he's a total neat freak. <laughs> <laughs> like, just say, that's putting it mildly. And almost a robot person. Yes. Uh, and they start to a- actually bond. He actually starts to get better through all this. And then, of course, something happens that, that makes the bottom fall out of There's the done, done, and then done. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I do think this is a, a well-performed film. It's fun to watch. Although I will say that, like, usually with con films, you're more exci- you're more into watching the cons play out than yeah. this one that you're actually just enjoying this relationship between mm-hmm. this fucked up dad and his daughter. <laughs> it's like, it's they have a lot of good chemistry together, and you enjoy watching it play out. Watching Nick Cage slowly move the dial back from 11 to somewhere around 7 or 8 on yeah. the Nicolas Cage scale. Which is still, like, 43 for anybody else. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think that's one of the biggest reasons why I found, like, the ending I found to be kind of a... I mean, I, I get it now. I'm, like, not as emotionally invested, having seen it now the second time, mm-hmm. where I already knew it was coming. Um, that I'm like, okay, I get that, in a way, it's still a happy ending of sorts. You know? It's just such a big... feels like such a big fuck you the first time you watch it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's definitely like, oh, he actually did grow. Yeah. I mean, I still think this is a... I think it's a solid film that could have been better. It has its issues. There, yeah, there are definitely but, loose ends, but, but for the most it, part. It's not... I shouldn't have written it off the way I did. So I now list this as one of the Ridley Scott films of the last 20 years that's actually worth Well, watching. back then, you, you called it shrill. <laughs> uh, next up is the final season, or half season, of Mad Men. Done. Did you get to watch it? No. Oh! Uh, I'll catch up. I'll catch up. Uh-huh. Uh, anyway... This brings to, I think, a really successful ending, this TV show, in a way that I haven't heard a lot of complaints about. You always expect to hear more people bitching. At the worst, I heard people saying, I'm not entirely clear what happened. And I admit, even I was a little like, I just need to think about this for a while. And, of course, my girlfriend, Courtney, was immediately like, oh, well, this is what happened. And I was like, (laughs) oh, yeah, you're right. Shit, but she's watched like every episode like five times. So, <laughs> well, it, you know, ha- having that kind of an ending, obviously, Sopranos did it to, to much more of a fuck you from the fan base. <laughs> oh well, the Sopranos came to a ending that was like, no, what, like, 
but like every single question that you had, everything the show was building up to, they refused to answer. Yeah, which is not what they did with Batman at all. Okay, no, no, no. They just had a sort of like they had an ending that basically you could interpret it more than one way. Like on first glance, mm-hmm. but then on closer inspection, it only seemed like it could be one interpreted one way. Okay, it just it's a little abstract, but it still felt very definitive at the same time. <laughs> and a really beautifully shot as as uh, Don, who is definitely taking up the bulk of the season, as he's just lost on a trip in America, basically mm-hmm. driving across the country, abandoned his job, abandoned his family. Uh, is just searching for any kind of meaning in this world where he's lost his his reason for living, basically. Yeah, but he's been doing that for seven seasons. Well, yeah, but at least he <laughs> his reason for living was doing his job well, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and caring for his family. But like, you know, he's lost his family. He's he keeps trying to replace his family, and it keeps not working. You know. <laughs> well, he should have just built up a trust for me. And well, that wouldn't be worth much in today's dollars, so that's fine. <laughs> well, maybe with inflation uh, or uh, not inflation, um, uh, uh, interest, interest. Yeah, uh, there's four commentaries on episodes on this. Uh, there is a uh, thing called Generation Boom Baby Boomers half hour special devoted to the b- baby boomer generation. There's a thing called Earth Day 1970 that looks at some of the defining moments of the Earth movement, which this. Don't get scared. It plays with loosely and in sort of an outside, sort of outsider looking in sort of thing. Like it was a thing that was starting there, but Don doesn't become a hippie. Uh, <laughs> um, there's a, a thing called Unmarried Professional Woman that looks at uh, the woman characters in the season and asks basically, what do you think happens next? Mainly, we're uh, looking at Elizabeth Moss, who mm. I think is next to Don, the most interesting character on the whole show. With the, with the most actual growth. <laughs> And they give her a really cool arc uh, in this final last season, and she has some of the most memorable sequences, like just visually, of of the whole show. There's a great thing where she's walking out of the office with a cigarette hanging out of her mouth, a painting of Japanese porno under one arm, and like her briefcase in the other, just looking so self assured. Hey, she's, she's got work to do. <laughs> yeah, she now that she got the Japanese porn, she does. Yeah, she's got to go see the little man in the boat. <laughs> That's right, bean flicking. Uh, and then there's a gallery looking at the history of advertising in the 1950s, which was a great time, by the way, as a graphic designer. I gotta say, it was. Oh, yeah. it was an amazing time for. Well, it's funny. This all leads up to, and it, like it wouldn't have occurred to me as somebody just watching the show to do this, but it leads up to one of the like most brilliant advertising like things that ever happened. But they still can't top today. I, I do know yeah. what it is. Yeah, and you're yeah. like, it is really one of those, and I remember seeing it as a kid, and like. It, it definitely had a profound yeah. effect. Yeah, I think I need one of those things. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, that worked. <laughs> and that really being kind of in the show itself, being a symbol for, like, both Don having learned a lot and Don having learned nothing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, Mad Men comes to a satisfying ending. You've been waiting till it was all done to watch it and to hear whether or not it was worth it by the end. It's worth it by the all end. Right. Uh, next up is Escape from Alcatraz. What? Yeah, the Clint Eastwood film um, made by his buddy Don Siegel, who he literally forced the studio to make the director because he did, he did some like six or seven films with Don Siegel, mm-hmm. and this is probably the best of them. Um, even though it's funny, Escape from Alcatraz is such a straightforward, no bullshit movie. Mm-hmm. It's like here's some guys. 
They're in jail. Here's Alcatraz. They're going to escape from jail. <laughs> and there's not any fat to trim whatsoever. <laughs> They're just like, this is the plot. Everything that happens is directed towards that end. Go. <laughs> uh, I I think this is actually a pretty, still pretty good jailbreak film. I don't think it has much in the way of emotional resonance at all. No, that's not what it's about. I mean, not at all. <laughs> no, you really don't really get to know much about these characters, except they're not going to stay in this jail. Yeah. You've got Clint Eastwood coming in as Frank Morris, who's just arrived at the beginning of this film, meeting the dickhead Warren, uh, warden, played by Patrick McGowan, speaking of the prisoner. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and then he meets uh, Fred Ward and Jack <sighs> Tabot, who play the Anglin brothers, uh, who have, uh, and the guy in the cell next to him, Charlie Butts, played by Larry Hankin. And multiple other uh, inmates in the place. Uh, and, you know, some of them are funny, meet, almost meet-cutes in jail, if you will. And some of them are, like, a little scary. But uh, Clint Eastwood knows the second he gets in there, he's already formulating how we're going to get out. I'm and getting out. Alcatraz was famous for being, like, the the unescapable from jail. Yeah, I mean, even the, no escapees. Even the few people who, like who disappeared from it are presumed dead because the waters around it are so fucking dangerous. They're mm-hmm. filled with sharks and they're really, really ridiculously strong currents. And it's and like negative uh, intentions. Yeah. They just, uh, the, no trace was ever found of any of them. It's assumed they died in the water. Uh, <laughs> it <laughs> takes I, care of itself. I think this is loosely based on, on the, uh, the, yeah, it's loosely based on the true events here, uh, where, um, of these guys where the film kind of adds the presumption they got away but mm-hmm. you know uh, yeah it's assumed they didn't in real life sorry <laughs> bummer <laughs> but yeah this is one of those Clint Eastwood films one of the list of ones I don't know if you'd go so far as say essential Eastwood but like second tier yeah it's definitely a filler that you're not going to hate yeah 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 um yeah, oh, I forgot Danny Glover's brief, briefly in this as well. Well, but you also... His we, film debut. You said Fred Ward, but you didn't say Remo Williams, The Adventure Ooh, Begins. We might be getting a copy of that for oh, review, Sam. I want Blue it so Red. bad. I just saw the I announcement. So I'm much. like, I love Remo Williams. <laughs> Such a, and everyone young is like, who the fuck is Remo Williams? Like, just wait. Oh, God, <laughs> it's so to, good. Joel Gray is the best. It's so much fun. Uh, that's from that period of my life when I thought that the, the three greatest films in the world were Remo Williams, uh, Big Trouble in Little China, and Buckaroo Banzai Across the Age. So at what point were you not proven wrong? <laughs> it's true. I've never been proven wrong. It's still absolutely accurate. That's what I'm saying. Uh, next up from the same period is Witness. This is the Peter Weir film with Harrison Ford playing a uh, police detective who is trying to protect this young Amish boy and her mother, the mother played by Kelly McGillis, who witnessed a murder uh, committed by Danny Glover, for the record. Again. Uh, (laughs) uh, And finds that the whole force is rotten from the inside, that the murder in in fact was covering up someone stealing large amounts of stuff from inside the police station. Mm. And so he himself has to disappear and he does it by basically becoming an Amish person with them inside the community. And I think at its heart, this doesn't even want to be a cops and robbers film. It's really kind of about like this fish out of water story. And yeah. This guy finding him like finding like 
happiness in a place that you he never thought he would. Yeah, when I I first watched it as as a youngster and was amazingly annoyed by it because you wasn't got, what you were expecting. Well, because you've got Han Solo slash Indiana Jones in this yeah. boring movie, uh, <laughs> but you know I've seen it at least two times since then, and each time it's I take more out of it. Yeah, I think this is a genuinely good film that is not meant. For that's not meant for the audience who it looked like it was meant for, right? You know, especially considering the types of films Harrison Ford had been in up until the yeah, because he was, was super like, huge at the time. Uh, what? <laughs> What's he doing? He's building a barn. Where's your damn whip? Come it's on, just to get something out of that. <laughs> uh, but it honestly is a really good movie. I think it's just very slow, a slow burn of a film that's oh, absolutely. Like I said, a character based drama, not really a thriller. In fact, when it gets back around to the thriller aspects later. Later on, it feels a little awkward and yeah, out of un- place. Un- unnecessary. Like, no, go away. I was enjoying this other story. <laughs> He's going to make butter. Uh, also, Lucas Haas, who ended up, had a, a brief stint in his teens as a bigger actor, mm-hmm. made his uh, his premiere appearance here as the young Amish kid who's kind of adorable. He's got those big-ass anime eyes. Yeah. I- <laughs> uh, but yeah, El Viggo Mortensen as well had one of his first appearances in this. Mm. Yeah. So that's witness. Hey, hell to the king. <laughs> Next up is Adamant, the blue bat black hussar. I'm not going to say too much about this. Look, it's Adamant. He was a big musician for 30 seconds in the 80s. Yep. Um, he had a few big hits. You were good to get two-shoes back then. He disappeared partially because he's severely bipolar. Ah. And had really strong, like problems dealing with this sudden fame that was coming upon him. In mm-hmm. fact, was has been, over the years, put inside the psychiatric hospital multiple times. Hmm. And this film is about his recent, you know, okay, I, I'm coming back, and like putting out a new album and going on tour, and determined that, like, you know, I've got my shit together now, and nothing in this film says to you anything but it's only a matter of time before this guy has a massive breakdown with reality again. Oh, that's unfortunate. I mean, he's dressing like a pirate now. Sure. Which is not a thing that associates itself with I've got unlocked into reality at this point. He's kind of an annoying misogynist jackass. <laughs> okay, I can see that. And it's not a very fun movie. You're like, I'm, we're supposed to like this guy watching this? and Because it's not one of those films you get like, okay, the director realizes after the fact what he's got here. Right. Uh, that is a disaster story and let's let's now edit it. Yeah, let's make it purpose. delicious. No, it's it's what it is 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 a uh, ego stroke piece for Adamant. I, I think financed by Adamant. Uh, that is do does it. nothing but make you want to have nothing to do with the guy. <laughs> I didn't before. <laughs> I'm not sold on him now. Yeah, like, like that's what he wants to be known now as the blue black hussar. And I'm like, no, you're like I don't know what to tell you we're like. <laughs> You've been gone for 25 years, and now you want us to know you as something else? No, sorry. Yeah, that's really bad marketing, bud. Goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) Next up is Northern Limit Line. This is a South Korean naval thriller, which is not what you normally expect. Yeah, I was going to say, that's that's not really what's usually on the Korean movie uh, boards. Uh, This is a big, for Korea, Spielberg-y type film. You know, like Spielberg-y war film uh, about the Northern Limit Line, which is the line that was agreed upon by South Korea, reluctantly sort of kind of agreed upon by North Korea Mm. in the ocean that divides exactly whose territory is who. That is fiercely defended by both so that neither may cross over the line. And about a group of uh, relatively new recruits on, on one of the boats there who got into the shit when conflict broke out. <laughs> and this is a true story. 
and I actually thought, despite despite it trying to be everything to everyone, it's not a bad film. No, no. I mean, because uh, when when you first handed me the the disc, I was like, oh Christ, I really hope this isn't Korean Battleship. <laughs> and it's not. <laughs> no, it's, it's better not. than Battleship. Yes, <laughs> um, but it's still it always pulls back from actually having anything really important to say or getting into making these characters any more than caricatures. Yeah, yeah. uh, I just felt that it was okay. (laughs) Yeah, it's and I can see why it's like one of the biggest films uh, in Korea, like ever, I think. Uh, It had, uh, I can't remember what the, yeah, it's the most watched Korean film in 2015. The biggest hit there. And, you know, I mean, it's very patriotic for Korea, as it were, right. and, like, anti-North Korea, which, you know, we're supposed to agree with. And I do. I mean, outside of, like, blind, like, adherence to the party line, I'm like, yeah, North Korea is pretty fucked up. Yeah, no, no. They're, <laughs> they're genuinely fucking shit up. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's such a such a weird uh, atmosphere in South Korea, you know, like, when I was there, it's just... The, these people, you know, your relatives are still there because it was only a, like a generation ago. Yeah. Uh, and so you don't want them to, to come over and try to force themselves on you. And you, but you're right next to them. Yeah. <laughs> you're just right next to them 24 hours a day. That's all there is. Well, um, And I, the, there's some of that that's really translated here, but I would have thought like this would have been more interesting if they had set up something like maybe one of the guys on the boat originally lived near one of the guys on the bad guy's boat or something. Like, yeah. there was some relationship there. And they try and, like, I- identify who some of the people are on the other side, but we literally know nothing about them. Mm-hmm. You know, like, okay, there's the bad guy. We just Go. know they're from Best Korea. <laughs> uh, and there's some cute moments in this, but really this is worth watching just for the, when the fight breaks out, which is totally nasty, bloody, gory. Yeah, yeah, I would, cool. I would agree with that. Yeah, I mean, it's the it's the D-Day scene from, from Saving Private Ryan on a boat. <laughs> but but no Matt Damon. All right, so moving, moving on from that Northern Limit line, we mm-hmm. now move to another going-off-to-war film, Testament of Youth. Oh, yes. These youths, they're always testamenting. Always having to go to war. Always having to deal with sticky emotions. <laughs> and this is indeed a sticky emotion film uh, based on a First World War memoir that apparently I'd never even heard of called The Same Thing, which apparently was kind of game-changing at the time when it came out, hmm. uh, about really being about like what it's like on the other side of the war, the people who were like not going off to war but dealing right. with their families yeah. who were gone. Uh, and here, uh, the, the lead role there, Bretagne, who is, of course, the person who wrote it. It's played by Alicia Vikander, who is in everything now. Yes. She's the new <laughs> she it is. girl. Uh, who is determined, to, right off the bat, she's like, I'm not interested in getting a husband. I'm going to be an independent woman, and I'm going to go to college and study. Her parents like, rah, 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 rah. And then they introduce her to Kit Harrington, who's like the nice young man from a good family. And she's like... On second thought, she's like, "Well, motherfucking Jon Snow." Okay, okay. Uh, but they are obviously falling in a big way for each other, partially because he's like, "No, I want you to go off to school and do it. Let's go to Oxford together." Yeah. Great. Only problem is, the First World War starts. It's and, noodles. And this is the period of time when going to war was still viewed as like noble and heroic, and like you know, war was like a you know a manly pursuit of like <laughs> of like a direct man versus man, not. 
thousands of men being mowed down by Gatlin guns and mustard gas that yeah, World War say, ended up being. Yeah, the, the <laughs> ugliest war the, the planet has ever seen. Quite possibly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was a brutal war. It's the reason why there are rules of warfare now. And even though she's, you know, she gets into Oxford kind of like, uh, just barely, because she doesn't really have all the qualifications, mm. but they, they like her moxie. <laughs> she's got it in spades. Uh, she decides that, no, she has to do her part, too. And so she decides she's going to become a nurse and, mm-hmm. and go and even work on the right near the front lines in the hopes to be closer to him. And it's kind of the story, like I said, all from her point of view. as she's She is kind of like trying to keep up with what he's doing and with her, her, her brothers uh, who are also over there in the war. Uh, and watching, like, this war destroy her family, basically. And I think that, like, I could see that at the period of time this was written, this was considered to be, like, something no one had even discussed. Yeah. You know, this point of view of things and finding it, you know, I mean, ultimately what this was was a cry for uh, pacifism. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I was just afraid at the beginning that it was going to be another British movie where where the the female protagonist has just... A folly of riches with all these young bows. And <laughs> it's not that, thank no, God. No, no, but I was scared. I was scared. And, uh, then- and it ends up being carried pretty damn well by Alicia Vikander, who's like certainly uh, one of the most charismatic young actresses working today. Mm-hmm. I think that like I can see why this was, you know, largely had a very limited release and didn't go to, to wide release at all, because it's not going to be the sort of thing that's going to have the kind of Sturmundrang for a war movie that's going to appeal to most bigger audiences. True. Um, you have nice things like Dominic West has a role in here, Taron Egerton, Colin Morgan, uh, Emily Watson, the always lovely Haley Atwell. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I always had a thing for Haley Atwell. We're not objectifying here, though, right? You're, you're no, going, because, because, because she's extremely talented. Because she's very talented and okay, smart right, and right, has yeah. a massive rack. Of of uh, experience, yes, that's what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yet, this is still a B, very much a BBC film. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's kind of dry. Uh, it's like a lot of the adaptations BBC films do. It's so loyal to the source material as to forget that you're trying to make a really involving film at the same time. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I don't think that's a criticism. In and of itself, because I don't think that Testament of Youth is something that you could make into a big Hollywood film anyway. No, but, if you did, it would it would ring hollow. Yeah, uh, but for what it is and what it's trying to adapt it, I think it does it quite well. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd say it's definitely a very focused movie as far as an audience goes. Yeah, agreed. Uh, if you tend to like this sort of thing, this is one of the better efforts I've seen of, of this sort of thing uh, this past couple of years, actually. But it's not going to win any new converts to the BBC. No, <laughs> no. Uh, next up is The Exorcism of Molly Hartley, the sequel <laughs> to a film uh, called The Haunting of Molly Hartley that everyone hated. <laughs> so I have no idea why they made a sequel to it. Yeah, how, how it was just approved to begin with. <laughs> yeah, I just, uh, like, and, and pretty much the first film, I have no clue why it wasn't called The Exorcism of Molly Hartley, because that's what it's about. Yeah, no, this was the first serious one. Yeah, this was, like, the second Exorcism of Molly Hartley, (laughs) where it's really trying to set up this, uh, oh, what's it, like, end-of-the-world scenario, Mm -hmm. like, where the first one's like, oh, yeah, she was possessed and all, but whatever, and this one is, like, 
oh, well, that was actually only the first salvo in what eventually becomes the setup for the Antichrist right. and the end of the world, which I didn't, I don't hate that scenario. I mean, I would guess I would in real life, but in the film, <laughs> I was like, I thought the very end of it was better than the rest of the movie deserved. You know? Yeah, but, but oh, so many exorcisms. At some point, you yeah. have to ask, what, well, what were you wearing? <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. I mean, the, this, the, there, there, there just are so many exorcism films now, and so few of them are worth watching at all. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, God, what is that one that's on Netflix everybody's been talking about with the older one? The Taking of Deborah Logan is the only oh. one I've seen any time recently that's worth your t- time at all. I, I've dismissed it just because I'm, I'm already done with exorcism well, They put movies. out like two a month. Yeah. <laughs> it's ridiculous. I'm like, why? What is going on with all this exorcist shit? Yeah. It's like, go back to the the classic haunters. Yeah. So glad The Conjuring 2 is on the way. Let's get on with it already. <laughs> Let's have something go boo. Yeah, exactly. And not just like, oh, it's the devil. <laughs> it's the devil. The devil is kind of, quite frankly, feels a little trite. Right now, yeah, it's like couldn't couldn't you have bigger plans, buddy? So the CEO of Starbucks gets possessed by the devil, and his first salvo against mankind is to take any reference to Christmas or Jesus off their cups. Well, having known Howard Schultz, that's actually true. (laughs) Is that what actually happened? Yeah, fair enough. Um, But but this is actually uh, the 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 uh, thousand year reign. It's not that bad. No, not so. I mean, considering a thousand years of darkness, it's yeah, like, it you're like, worse. Oh, that's the worst. Yeah. Are they still making a pumpkin spice latte? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's... well, see, I don't really see the problem. Yeah, that's actually how they keep it going. <laughs> uh, Sarah Lind comes on to play Molly Hartley in this one, who has a kind of hot three way scene in the beginning and then a really nasty aftermath of it. It starts despite mediocre acting relatively strong for a horror movie it just quickly descends into yet another going through the process exorcism flick uh with very little to offer with way too much cg and uh, just the big question on everyone's minds how did this even get made <laughs> like i said everybody hated the first one why did they make a sequel hey you know third time's a charm yeah uh, uh, well, next up, uh, for maybe fourth time was the charm for some, was Jurassic World. Yeah, that wasn't for me. Not for me either. <laughs> uh, although, I will say, like, I know that I like to be a bit hyperbolic sometimes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I think I talked more smack against this film than it necessarily deserves. Because I, I don't think it's a terrible film. Yeah, I don't think it's talked enough. I definitely think that it's a, like, everybody go watch them kind of movie. <laughs> but it's definitely one that spits on every part of your brain. Um, it has a lot of, now, why would they possibly do that? Or, and not just in terms of, like, characters doing dumb things, but, like, in terms of just writing, like, why did you make that choice? Yeah, like, so, so often. fucking choices time that they after make time. that are not like, oh, that was an unexpected thing to do. No, it was just like, well, that was a kind of brutal and unnecessary thing to do. <laughs> well, and one of my things was when, when, when all the dinosaurs get loose, spoiler alert, um... They, they're all hungry, hungry hippos. Like, they all just have to tear flesh. Like, none of them were, like, fed right before they got freed. And there's just the stuff that makes no sense. Like, okay, so they've got this giant dinosaur that is a... They've created. Like, no, okay, so the whole tree using tree frog thing, like, uh, obviously bit us in the ass in the last one. So, now in this one, let's make some completely random genetic choices yeah. and see what happens. Look. And they've had this thing in a cage for presumably a good amount of time already since it's full size. 
And one of the threats of the movie is, like, they suddenly discover that it has, like, uh, camouflage so good it's basically the Predator. Yes. What? What? Where did that DNA come from? Yeah, they like, might as well have just given it cybernetic enhancements. And they're like, huh, that's funny. I don't know how it would have gotten out of the cage. Let's walk around the cage and see if we can find this <laughs> thing that would kill us all with ease. Better open it up. Oh. Mm. Just retarded decision-making from characters and weird stuff in the writing. I mean, even Chris Pratt comes off pretty poorly overall. I was gonna I was gonna say, like, Chris Pratt, like Guardians proved that he can be a leading dude. Yeah, and the problem, but this wasn't <laughs> the, the problem is he's playing this uh, very self confident eighties leading man type role in a film where it seems awkward for his, that character to well, be there. Well but he's also eighties but kind of watered down. With with a few modern sensibilities, yeah, but in in such a ratio that it just makes you going, I don't know what he's trying to do here. Yeah, and, and like uh, Bryce Dallas Howard, they make to be so thoroughly unlikable. Yeah, like that you have no idea why you should care what happens to her. The kids in the film that are in here, almost like an afterthought, are given no personalities, do incredibly irresponsibly stupid things, and you want them to die. Yeah, so that, so that they won't muck up the movie anymore. <laughs> yeah, you're just like, wow, those characters are annoying. Why do we care what happens to them? They're like, this is an important lesson for all the kids out there of stuff not to do at a theme park. Exactly. <laughs> uh <clears throat> but the, the effects look pretty good. Some of the fights are pretty fucking cool. If not, yeah. if not, some of the fights are even like, wait, why is that happening too? I felt like there's this moment. There's there's a there's too many things where they were trying too hard to copy the exact beats from the original Jurassic Park. Mm. You know, where you're like, why are you just doing the same thing? Especially towards the end. Like, yeah. you know, that where you're like, wait, that's exactly what happened. Just changing out the monsters at the end of Jurassic Yeah, you're, you're just like, okay, when does... Dun, 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 like, yeah. when, when, when is that going to play? And then we know that it's safe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, it is funny, though, to watch the deleted scenes here. There is a sequence. Did you get to watch any of the extras? Mm-mm, no, you kept the disc. This, oh, did I? Okay, yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, there is a deleted scene here where uh, Pratt and Howard are going through the woods and he reaches into a giant pile of dung and starts, dinosaur dung, and starts smearing on herself. And uh, she's like, what are you doing? It's like, look, you smell like vanilla scented lotion. That dinosaur is going to smell it from way off. You need to put some of this on you. So the filmmaker decides to make it sexy and has a shot of her slowly pulling up her skirt and rubbing dinosaur poop on her thighs and on her chest. And you're like... What the fuck? <laughs> no, nah, dude, that that plays really well in Germany. <laughs> Maybe so. The Scheiza film community. Exactly. Uh, but you're like, wow, thank God someone convinced him to delete that. <laughs> it was like, Jesus Christ. Rear it back, dude. Rear it back. And when I'm watching some of the extras on here, like there's a, there's a kind of cute interview between Chris Pratt and the director, Colin Trevorrow, who is, I mean, it's kind of, they're trying to be, you know, funny and silly about it, but Colin Trevorrow says all the wrong things. Like, I tried to make this film as if for the eight-year-old that I wanted to, that, that, that I felt like I was when I first saw this. I tried to make this, ex- like, from the viewpoint, even, of a little kid making it. Mm. And I was like, that's a terrible fucking idea, dude. <laughs> you know who else said something like that? George Lucas, when he made the prequels, he said the same thing, and look what happened there. And sure enough, we run into a lot of the same problems. Uh, this It's a mess, and you don't feel like he was ever taking it seriously. Yeah, yeah. At all. <laughs> you know? It, it felt like they were trying too hard to please the investors. 
Yes. Like, like, like there, and there was also an homage <laughs> quota that they had to fill. Yeah. Uh, that's very true. Like, even, like, really bizarre callbacks to the first film. <laughs> You're like, really? Okay. Um, there's a lot of bonus features on there, as you might expect. And obviously, little kids are still going to enjoy this sort of thing. But that's the problem, is, like, you can make a film that both little kids and adults will really enjoy. And this is a film that was made just for little kids. Mm-hmm. Just too violent for the littlest of them. Yeah, that, well, uh, all throughout I was going, who is the intended audience here? Because I don't, I don't see it. it. It was bloody, but it was also stupid, and then it was also cutesy, all just wrapped together. Well, I, guess, I knew we could go on and on complaining about Jurassic World. Um, I, I, and, and I did. And a lot of it is really just like, you know, after all this time, we deserve something better than this. I came from the from the viewpoint not of like you owe me better as as like a Jurassic Park fan. It was just like you owe me better as a moviegoer. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. It was just a very mediocre entry in the series, and I, I now officially, I mean, this is this is the prequels of the Jurassic Park series. And I know people like to bitch about two and three, but mm-hmm. they look great compared to this one. Yeah, in a they lot do. Of ways. <laughs> Gymnastics to to the head. Yeah. Uh, next up is the Wolf Pack. This was one of the most discussed NPR dramas uh, 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 documentaries this year. Mm-hmm. I was really looking forward to seeing this one. I was too. Uh, where you're like, okay, this is interesting. A whole big ass family of kids uh, who were all raised in this apartment in the Lower East Side of New York City by their mom and dad, and barely ever allowed to leave at all. Yes, like maybe, like they said, like maybe once a year they went out of the house. And the rest of the time, they just lived in their apartment and watched lived on a diet of nothing but movies yeah where they were allowed to watch whatever they wanted and in fact made their you know their existence consisted of watching movies memorizing the scripts of the movies and then using video cameras and and pretty cleverly put up put together props to recreate the films yes they were the duct tape warriors <laughs> yeah they were seriously <laughs> duct tape can do anything as is proven here uh, and it's a it's an interesting premise for a film. I think the problem is with this is it just goes on entirely too long. It, it really does. Um, you're like, what a great third of a film this would be. Mm-hmm. If you found other people who, like, stories might balance this, other stories of, like, shut-ins who made the best of it, you know, whatever. Yeah. Like, as part of a series. But, like, as a full 90-minute uh, film, by the end, I was so ready for this to be wrapped up because they they had run out of stuff to tell you about these people by 30 minutes into it. Oh, into oh, yeah. Well, and... and, and uh I, I don't know how intentional it was, but the the more it went on, the more you get to see these kids are genuinely fucked up. Yeah. Like, they are all scarred for life. They are not well-adjusted people. No, and the film tries to sell you that they are well-adjusted right. people. And you're like, there's a very different film that you could have made out of this uh-huh. that would have been considerably more interesting. The problem is they were clearly doing this with the participation of the entire family. Right, and they're, and they're not trying to shit on the family. And no. nor, nor should they, but... But, Ooh. I mean, I felt like it was one of those ones they should have sat on this footage and, and kept talking to them over the next couple mm-hmm. of years and mm-hmm. following their lives and seeing what happened. Because this is filmed too close on the end of, like, them going out into the world. Right. And it's it's not like Grey Gardens where it's like, oh, they're insane. But this is a charming kind of insane. This is like, these these 
children are all at the beginning of their lives, and they are finally getting out into the real world, and this is not going to be pretty. I mean, I get, like, a lot of people are like, well, this is kind of a microcosm reflection on how we're all, like, why we're so fascinated with film, but that's not what I took away from Uh this at all. Uh, I thought that that was, like... It's an amusing selling point. Right. But ultimately, that level of it becomes nothing but creepy as this goes on. And that's not what they're trying to do with the film. That's just what I took away from it. Yeah, and they did have a hard time trying to balance not letting all the family secrets out. Yeah. Which, you want to know more, but you you know, there's there's probably a really good reason why they're not saying it. Yeah. Uh, I want to know more of that stuff. Right. Like, and it never really gets there. It just, like I said, after about the 30 minute point, it said everything it has to say. And from there, it's just treading water, following, following watching more of these kids doing sketches, uh, more, cause they've shit tons of film throughout yep. their lives. They yes, just they filmed do. everything. Uh, and like them going out into the real world afterwards, and like one of them wants to be a filmmaker himself, and is making these pretty terrible little abstract movies <laughs> that that, uh, that are included on the disc that you can watch, and showing kind of the making of that, and him like st- one of them, the oldest one, kind of getting a girlfriend. And, yeah, you know, you're like that stuff is interesting if it if we get to keep following that right. stuff and see how this experience negatively affected them, but that the film never goes there. Well, like like a really telling scene was where uh, the one kid who wants to really be in movies uh, gets a PA job, and they're on break, and he's just talk, 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 talking, and you can tell that nobody else yeah, wants to like, be around oh, him. Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, I know. Why don't we get the interviews with the other people yeah. who had to work with him there? It's like, I, I'm not trying to be cruel i'm just saying this isn't a wildly unfinished document right. that's incredibly one-sided and is trying to be charming and there's nothing really charming about this situation no they stayed in the setup yeah yeah i thought in the end it's abusive and this is a film that barely wants to deal with that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's kind of gross <laughs> yeah uh anyway the wolf pack i know it's gotten a lot of great reviews it's certainly one of those ones that i'm like well, you know, give it a look-see. Uh, but if you find yourself getting bored after about 30 or 40 minutes, know that you're not you're really missing yeah, anything. Yeah, you're good. Yeah. Next up is Mike Tyson Mysteries, the TV show I most wanted to not like. Because, but you did. But I did. Quite frankly, you know, it's like, you know what? Fuck Mike Tyson. He's fucking rapist, woman beater, dumb piece of shit. Go on. Like, fuck that guy. It's like, I'm sorry. I don't care if you're a great athlete or a great whatever you know, no matter what, I don't care how good you are at what you do. If you're like raping people, th- yeah, I just kind of lost interest at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but yeah, well, the thing is, like, he's never really like. Uh, there are other people who fucked up in their lives, cr- created people who have since made penance. Mm-hmm. Mike Tyson has never made any penance for no. the shit he did. Like he'll he's gone and say, "No, I'm a Christian now, and I'm st- I don't drink or anything." And then it f- you find out he's near death because he's drinking and doing so many drugs afterwards. And mm-hmm. you're like, "Dude, you are a, a fucking like pathological liar of a human being." <laughs> uh, but that being said, they sent me this thing from Adult Swim from Warner Brothers Animation. That is sort of like a Scooby-Doo, Johnny Quest type deal satire, almost Venture Brothers-y in a way, with Mike Tyson, who's gathered together uh, his adopted daughter, uh, this this uh, uh, Asian girl named Young-Hee, uh, and a uh, ghost 
uh, the Marquess of Queensberry, who's like a complete fop, voiced by Jim Rash from Community. Like, the most perfectly cast guy for that role. Yeah. And then a pigeon who is uh, voiced by Norm MacDonald that uh, was formerly a human who was turned into a pigeon by his ex-wife as a curse for cheating on her, and he's like a complete misanthrope and you know, heavy drug user and what have you. So it's basically Mike Tyson's life. Uh, and they go out and they solve mysteries. They have like birds come fly in and like, cause they, they have a whole pigeon coop and they're like, Oh, we've got another mystery to solve. And they go out and do them. And God help me. This show is really fucking funny. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not very nice to Mike Tyson is part of the thing. I think I like about it. Cause yeah. he's portrayed as a complete moron. <laughs> Well, <laughs> you say portrayed. Yeah, I mean, he's voicing it himself, and there's even a bit at the end of every set of credits where there's a live-action thing with him, and you're like, like, I don't think he gets that we all know he's a moron, and that this is funny because it, it's not making any bones about the fact that the, that we think he's an idiot, and it's funny watching him be an even bigger idiot. Mm. <laughs> uh, but yeah, there's a... Uh, like, what I like, one of the things I like about it is like there are all these, like obscure people in society who uh, they surround like Elon Musk is in an episode, you know, uh, uh, it, it's, uh, uh, Cormac McCarthy. There's an episode where they have to fight a chupacabra <laughs> who's attacking, uh, Cormac McCarthy's horses. Gary Kasparov, uh, is, is, uh, like the, the chess master is in one buzz Aldrin. Uh, Robert Redford is a particularly funny one. I don't know. I, I thoroughly enjoyed this. Well, good. Did you get to watch any of these? I didn't get to watch okay, it. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> Joe had a slow week. Yeah, it was it was a late entry into the into the games. Uh, but yeah, Mike Tyson mystery is much better than it should be. Uh, next up is the Vatican tapes, which I'm not going to say that last sentence about because it is not. It's about what I would think it would be. <laughs> it's another it's fucking awful. exorcism film. <laughs> this one, the only reason I had any interest in this at all is that this is the first solo film directed by Mark Neveldine. Uh, he and his his uh, uh, filmmaking partner, uh, Brian Taylor, are famous for making the Crank films, which I love to pieces. Okay, that's why the, the name was familiar. But yeah. I, I, Crank and Crank 2, which okay. are so fucking awesome. They, they are so crank. They're totally insane <laughs> movies. Uh, this is not a totally insane movie. This is actually a really boring exorcism film about a young woman uh, played by Olivia Taylor Dudley, who, for the record, is one of those actresses that is like keep seeing in things lately. She was in The Last Paranormal Activity, mm-hmm. and I was like, Jesus Christ, she's so fucking hot. Who is she? So she, you think and, she's the next And is suddenly on the radar, uh, but like only seems to take these little roles in crappy horror films. Well, uh, that's the that's the uh, that's the trap, man. Yeah, that's how they get you. Uh, she uh, goes from being like a totally normal person to suddenly starting to act really strange. Her father, played by Doug Ray Scott, and her boyfriend, played by John Patrick uh, Am- 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 Amadori. Uh, hook up with a priest played by awkwardly by Michael Pena, <laughs> and two Vatican exorcists played by Juman Hansu and Peter Anderson realize that an, uh, that Satan is taking her over and rinse repeat. Yeah, I, I feel bad for Jimon. Like he, 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 he's got a lot of talent. He never gets to use it anymore. Well, he's was like a looked like he was on the road to being an A list actor. He was. He and, like Amistad was like boom. Here we go. And then suddenly he's like at the bottom doing direct-to-DVD shit like this. Well, I guess it, it actually did get a limited theater release, but 
Ugh. Yeah. So bad. And there's none of that style, really, that you expect from Neville Dean. There's some shots that are kind of interesting at its best. Well, the weird thing is, like, I was, I was, uh, I wasn't even mad. I was just annoyed that yeah. it wasn't over. <laughs> yeah. It didn't, <laughs> it did not end quickly enough. Yeah. Which would have been 15 minutes tops. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's just a, stop making exorcism movies. I mean, I guess it's because they're realizing that we live in a world where people have a hissy fit over Starbucks cups, and so there's a lot of <laughs> really gullible, heavily religious people who rent from Redbox anything that looks like it might scare them if Satan is the bad, the adversary. No, that, no, that's very true. Uh, you know, I thought about it when we were talking about the last one, like when my dad became a born again. He's like, there aren't no ghosts; it's just the devil. Like, oh, okay. I actually listened to a, I, I listened to this uh, uh, when I'm trying to creep myself out sometimes. Uh, this uh, podcast called Anything Ghost, which is a kind of <laughs> funny name for a mm-hmm. podcast. Yeah, no, where cute. the guy literally just reads in reads submitted uh, ghost stories, personal ghost stories that oh, people sent him, and it's actually he's really good at it. And uh, sometimes if people record their own, sometimes they'll just play those as mm-hmm. well, and it's. It's very well edited, very well done, and some stories are better than others, but there was one where it was like that, where the dad was like, there's no such thing as ghosts, there's just the devil. There's yeah. just demons and the devil. And like the fact that like everyone in his family, was, other than him, was convinced that this house was haunted, he was like, would absolutely have no truck with it. But when the one kid was in there at night, and like a bunch of shit happened, he came running in, said, Dad, this happened, and he's like, go get your brothers, and you can sleep in here with me. Uh, and that was all that was ever said of it. <laughs> no other thoughts ever spoken on the matter. I was like, really? Because I'd much rather believe in ghosts than the devil is there. <laughs> Way to fuck up your kids. Yep. Uh, next up, I spit on. Speaking of ways to fuck up your kids, I spit on your grave. Three vengeance is mine, which That's is right. weirdly numbered. Considering I spit on your grave two is not called I spit on your grave two. It's just called I spit on your grave. Mm-hmm. It's a, basically a remake of the original seventies film. Grave. I spit on your grave, but no. This is I Spit on Your Grave 3. It brings back Sarah Butler playing her role of Jennifer Hills from the 2010 remake of I Spit on Your Grave, which was, to me, about the same level as the first one, which I've always found kind of reprehensible that they try and defend it as a feminist horror film. Oh, no. No, they they graphically show this woman repeatedly being raped and degraded and then get revenge. I'm like... No, it would be a feminist film if all that stuff happened off camera, maybe, and then she takes revenge. <laughs> well, right, because it was focusing on the wrong aspect of yeah, it. Yeah, it really is. But I will hand it to part three that it's trying kind of to make up for the things that <laughs> they are totally not feminist, even though it completely overplays its hand. <laughs> well, but, you know, it... it, it, it uh, oof. I don't know if you can say kind of light and fun about a rape no, revenge movie. No, Well, I mean, like I said here, she's the rapes happened a while ago, so it's not like she gets raped all over again. Right. So we're not doing one of those. It's actually trying to continue the story, as it were, instead of just another oh, but remake. how awful would that be? I know, right? Uh, where now she's trying to get into, like, a normal life. Uh, like, it's been clear that, for whatever reason, she got off scot-free mm. from the previous things. Like, was never caught for killing and murdering and hacking up all the guys who well, raped no, She's just like, uh, it was that girl. Uh, she is an aspiring writer. Uh, she works between being an assault hotline operator. <laughs> You're like, seriously? Talk about your like uh, uh, triggering jobs. Yeah. <laughs> Not so good. Uh, she goes to group counseling. She gets personal therapy for her deal under an assumed name. And she ends up in this group uh, 
finding a connection with another woman there who has been through similar, not similar things, but has been abused and mm-hmm. raped. I mean, very few people have had the experience she had, mind you, uh, to that degree. But uh, they form a bond because the other girl is kind of like, no, we're not going to take any shit from any men. And they go out and they start playing like nasty pranks on dudes who like have been accused of rape and stuff. And you're like going, this is probably not healthy. No. But then when the girl ends up murdered by her, uh, like her ex boyfriend and the police can't, you know, put it together. Right. She decides she's going to turn and turn into the Terminator and go out and start just brutally murdering more men. Uh, which is actually the point of the film that I thought it got kind of dull. I was kind of interested in it before that, yeah. where it was like, oh, you're actually having something, you actually feel like you're trying to say something interesting here about our society and about women who've been in this position, maybe even trying to heal after the fact and deal with that they don't trust any men and that sort of thing. Yeah. And then it takes this like sharp left turn, but expected one into pretty much what I suppose most people who rented the movie wanted to see. Yeah, well, I mean, for some reason, this one, uh, I had more of an association with, like, the Duke lacrosse uh, team. Uh, as far as, you know, like, they were all accused of rape, and then everything has just fallen apart as far as substantiating it. Yeah. Uh, to where, like, you know, real life is a lot more nuanced, but this, this was a lot more like... No, meat, potatoes. This is this is all. There is. <laughs> I mean, I felt like you could compare this a little bit more to like something like Ms. Forty Five, if you've ever seen that, mm-hmm. the Abel Ferrara film, where I'm like, this is actually probably the best of the spit on your grave movies, which I realize is a controversial statement to people who give a shit. <laughs> I know you're out there somewhere, uh, but I think easily it's the best of the three, which isn't to say it's a good movie. No, once again, it's. And I don't want to say enjoyable about rape. Like, oh, but there is a sequence in here that is one of the nastiest revenge like killings ever, involving a metal pipe and a mallet. Use your imagination, yeah. folks. Or, or watch like, it. Even had me go, oh, God, no. <laughs> so you're evoking something here, and I don't think I like it. I mean, it's actually the goriest of the three films mm-hmm. uh, by, by a sizable margin. Uh, and I think Sarah Butler is actually uh, a reasonably good actress in this role. Apparently, yeah. the only reason she agreed to do this at all was that it wasn't just another remake. That it was actually going to try and advance it and say something. But I think it gets lost in its own, well, we still have to make a horror movie. So Yeah. <laughs> but what you going to do? Yeah. I don't quite spit on your movie, but I glance disdainingly at it. Uh, yeah, I, would, I wouldn't be like, you should watch it. No. Uh, next up is Mr. Holmes, which I would be like, you should watch it. Oh, you absolutely should. Uh, now, I think that my whole life has been leading up to the moment when I got to see Ian McKellen play Sherlock Holmes. Absolutely. <laughs> Although I kind of hoped I'd see it happen in a Doctor Who or something like that, but still. <laughs> yeah, or, or a few years earlier. Yeah, a few years earlier. But this is directed by Bill Condon, who worked before with Ian McKellen on Gods and Monsters, which to great acclaim. Mm-hmm. Uh, terrific fucking movie. Remember back when we thought Brendan Fraser would be an A-list actor? Yeah. Yeah, that was one of the, that was that movie. Yeah, that was a, that was a weird time for us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is based on the novel from 2005, A Slight Trick of the Mind, with Ian McKellen playing Sherlock Holmes, except a very, very, very old Sherlock Holmes. Yes. It is the end of his life. It's 1947. He's 93 years old. He's living in the middle of nowhere in Sussex with his housekeeper, Mrs. Monroe, played by Laura Linney, and her small boy. Uh, her small, teachable boy. Yes. Uh, he's just gotten back from Hiroshima, where... 
he's met up with a guy who has sold him on the benefits of this something called prickly ash plant there to help him with his memory because he's already having I mean he hasn't fallen into dementia but he's he having, knows he's slipping yeah he knows I mean Sherlock Holmes he's got the most together brain in history in the context of the films and uh, and now he's not what he once was and that's driving him up the fucking wall it's like intellectual vanity though uh, <clears throat> so he's kind of unhappy about he's he finally got around to reading <clears throat> Dr. Watson's excuse me <laughs> novelizations of his short stories based on their cases and they're like oh my god there's so much stuff that was bullshit and he's especially <laughs> upset that the last one that he wrote the adventure of the dove dove gray glove was way off and it was one that he can it's the one that made him stop being a detective mm-hmm. and this film is kind of it's set in uh different periods of time it's set like in the you know the the primary time where he's old he's a beekeeper he's dealing with this kid kind of forming a bond with him uh it deals with his time in hiroshima and what happened there and how that affected him and it deals with the period of time during this case where this guy was basically thought that his his wife is like getting advice from a spiritualist over their dead son and it's fucking her up and he goes to find out that the truth is much darker and more horrible than that yeah uh and all these things wrap up into the most human, heartfelt story, and not in a triacly way at all. No, no, it's not saccharine by any no, means. No, not at all. Uh-uh. And it's, of course, guided by Ian McKellen's massive skill oh, as so a performer. <laughs> yeah. I was... I, how old is he now? I don't know. Because I think he's in his 80s, but I just remember why... Well, remember, because it was only like a week ago. He's but, 76. Okay. But watching it and thinking, he's so tiny and frail looking in this. Like yeah. they, they they did a really good job of that. Uh, oh, yeah. No, I mean, obviously they put on a certain amount of makeup as yeah. well for the... For the um, the modern day for the 1947 scenes because like and you know fully half the movie is set in the uh you know at least i think they said it was 20 years before or mm-hmm. something like that with this last case uh where he looks more like he, he does normally right. uh but i just i at the end of this you're just like you want to watch it with your mom or <laughs> whatever member of your family is aging and like you know, you want to connect with. Yeah, it was it was weird with with it being sweet without being cloying. Not cloying in the slightest. So, and it is really sort of about that. Like, what have you done with your life? What are you going to think about your life when you look back on it? Um, you know, what if you still have time to do something and say something or change something at that late? Yeah, like the twilight years. What would that be? It's like shit. Now I got to be Jimmy Carter. Especially if you were the world's greatest detective. Yes. I, there was one thing. Well, he was Batman. <laughs> no, no, Batman's a fictional detective. Sherlock Holmes. Oh, oh right. Gotcha. <laughs> there was one nice little bit I really enjoyed here, where uh, he goes to see a Sherlock Holmes movie for the first time, uh, and the actor playing Holmes in the movie is the guy who played young Sherlock Holmes in the movie '80s film. <laughs> I, was oh, like, I, didn't... I was like, wait, that guy. I think that's him. And I looked it up. It's like, sure enough, that was the guy. <laughs> I was like, that was a nice little. Bit. That guy hasn't gotten to do anything in a long time. Yeah, give him that. <laughs> give him that one thing. Uh, but yeah, I, 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 Mr. Holmes is terrific stuff. Uh, definitely, this is not an action film mm-hmm. or a tension film. It's a really all too human film. But it, it, you know, it doesn't have crappy pacing, and it's not, no. it's not dry or boring for no. for a BBC film. Well, it's partially because Ian McKellen is just so goddamn oh, yeah. mesmerizing in the role. I, I did get a little annoyed with all the time jumpies. 
But uh, it's not really something you could get around. It's mildly confusing at first because he doesn't look drastically different. Right, enough. but once you but settle into it. Once you settle into it, it's not a problem. Yeah. Yeah, figuring it out. But yeah, Mr. Holmes, definitely great. Uh, next up, Monty Python and the Holy Grail getting re-released again. Now it's the 40th. Uh, the 40-year edition, Jesus Christ, I have been alive way too long already, it seems like, sometimes. <laughs> 40th anniversary edition uh, for this 1975 film. Um, look, it looks better than it ever has. Okay. It's a great transfer. Mm-hmm. It's packed to the gills with bonus features. Packed to the gilliam? Yeah, packed to the gilliam with bonus features. Even a featurette on Gilliam's work animate, mm-hmm. doing the animations for, which is pretty cool. Yeah, they, that, that's that's one thing they, they've consistently given uh, fan service is... is uh, uh, Lauding his his animation. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, it's so much well, an essential yeah. part of the whole Python thing. Uh, just most of this is stuff from the last time they re-released it. Just a lot of it upgraded into Blu-ray. Okay. Uh, and all that stuff is wonderful. Like totally worth owning anyway if you don't have it already. The one really big added thing in here is there's a new like 35 minute on stage discussion between them and with uh, between them all on stage and John Oliver as the host. Oh, okay. The discussion, which is what you'd hope. The poor, right. the poor guy is like has this whole plan. He comes <laughs> on stage. He's got cards, and uh, there's a point he literally just throws the cards away because he cannot get a word in. Well, edgewise. no, you're gonna be you're gonna be dwarfed by X. Ex- Experience and years of friendship. They they just like silly him off the stage pretty much, <laughs> and it's a it's a pleasure to watch. Even though it's a little sad, there John at one point John Cleese is like like they're ten minutes in. He's like, I'm sorry. Do you mind if I sit next to you? I literally can't hear anything you're saying. Mm-hmm. And he's only sitting like seven feet from him, and they all have microphones. Right, and you're like, Duh. yeah. Well, <laughs> our time in Eden couldn't last forever. But yeah, Python and the Holy Grail, I still, uh, one of the extra features on here describes that's funny that they always thought it was odd that Holy Grail is the most popular Python film in America, Mm -hmm. but Life of Brian is the most popular film in England. Mm -hmm. I personally am more partial to Life of Brian. I mean, which is not to say anything bad about Holy Grail. No, no. It's fucking a classic. Well, I, I think easily one of the funniest movies ever made. Uh, well, because because Holy Grail is more of a just like a silly fest, and Life yeah. of Brian's a movie that's very silly. Yeah, yeah, Life of Brian actually has a context where it's trying to say something, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in bits and pieces, but it actually has it's trying to make some society points. Holy Grail is uh, exercise in complete absurdity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wonderfully so. Yeah. And there's lots of deleted scenes on here as well. And like outtakes, you know, stuff I didn't even know existed. Nice. You know? So yeah, my Python, the Holy Grail 40th edition, you really probably should have it in your collection. <laughs> it's been a long time. She's seen it. It's time to watch it again. And remember how funny it truly is. And if you've never seen it, well, what the fuck? Stop listening to this right now and go watch it. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Next up is My Fair Lady, the um, that's raw age. The 1964 musical adaptation of the of the 19 uh, based on the 1938 film adaptation of the original 1913 stage play uh, Pygmalion by George Bernard Shaw, which in and of itself was also based on Taming of the Shrew by William. So Shakespeare. there we go, and that was based off of life, y'all. <laughs> truth, truth. Uh, this won eight Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Actor, and Best Director. Unfortunately, it's 219 minutes long. Oh, my God. Yes, it is. Uh, and <laughs> you feel every minute of it. The one real saving grace of this thing to me is that every song in here holds up as a classic. Like, they're 
all good songs. Yeah, if you like that sort of shit, it's great. Um, yeah, I, I, and I do. I love the classic musical, and I'll, but going back and watching a lot of them, I'm like, yeah, these don't really right. hold up musically. A lot of these songs kind of meander out, and I love almost every song in this movie. Yeah, uh, that's... I'm not a musical guy. Yeah. Uh, I like a few, but this is certainly not one of them. I mean... I can appreciate how good it is. Right. Um... But the the, the 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 video treatment that they gave it, the restoration, oh, is, that that would knock my socks off. Is startlingly beautiful. It's and so it's such good. a nice case. They gave it kind of a weight to mm-hmm. it, even though it's thin. It made you feel like you paid however much you paid for it. Yeah, yeah. well, it's the 50th anniversary. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it just it looks and sounds amazing. Um so good and so much better than the previous 2011 Blu-ray uh, version of this. Uh, and, you know, I mean, there's... Uh, I guess I will say, once again, like, it's just too long. I mean, mm-hmm. it's way too long. In my opinion, a musical only can be this long if it's filled with dancing. And this is not a dancing musical. Like, if you give me Gene Kelly or Fred Astaire in a musical where they're doing these un- inhuman fucking mm-hmm. dance steps and it's just a marvel to watch them, like a mar- the dancing version of a martial arts film, then yes, I can <laughs> I can be with you as long as you want to go. But when it's just singing, I have trouble not tuning out at some point. And, and that's even with, I think, Audrey Hepburn being one of the most beautiful and talented woman ever to work in Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, but as I grow older watching her movies, I'm like, oh, this is horrible. This is awful. Yeah? Like, like as, as far as so uh, antithetical, I, I, I mean, guess based on, on current viewpoints, it's like, this is not a very woman-friendly story. Like, No, I, especially the ending. <laughs> oh, my God. It's so misogynist, the yes. ending of this story. It's yep. like, are you kidding? Did you guys just really do that? <laughs> oh my god! Because like I had the same thing when I rewatched Breakfast at Tiffany's a couple of months ago. I was yeah. like, this is awful too. <laughs> Where it's not friendly towards women at all. You know what? It's cute and all. You try and be independent, but in the end, just face it. You're going to do what we tell you. You have to. You should. Come on, don't be stupid. <laughs> that's what they. That's what they. Both these movies sell. Uh, there's a ton of bonus features on here, including a bunch of stuff ported over from the previous release and a bunch of new stuff as well. Uh, if you are a big fan of this film, this is probably as good a collection of uh, a good a version of this as will ever exist. Yeah, it, it seemed top dollar. Uh, next up is Roar. 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 Uh, <laughs> you have to see this. Yeah, no, that's that's an imperative. <laughs> and yet, it's not a good movie at all. Mm-mm. It's a terrible movie that you have to see, and you have to see it with friends. Yeah, it's it, this is uh, oh that's cute. You, you like the room, like no, this, no, not this, that kind of bad. No, no, I say it is that kind well, of bad. This is one of I the guess. worst movies I've ever seen, but in such a completely enjoyable well, way. The thing is, is that you're not laughing at like like when you watch the room, you're laughing at how bad it yeah it, it is, and yet they want it to be good. You're laughing at how bad it is. This you're not laughing at it. You're, you're horrified, horrified that it would have got made at all. Well, yeah, not not that it's bad. That it's no. stupid. Everything's a dumb idea. It's well, like dumb in terms of life threat. Yes, um, this is a, a film starring Tippi Hedren and her real life husband Noel Marshall, who directed and wrote this thing as well, um, and starring their real life families, including a very young Melanie Griffith. Uh, so this is all actually performed by almost entirely this real family, who in preparation for this film lived with giant cats. 
I don't mean like my cats, like monkey and and stuff. I mean like lions and yeah, tigers not and, and not bears, but but uh, <laughs> black panthers and cougars and mountain lions, full grown, lived with them for like five six years beforehand. Where they were like, yeah, if you watch the extra features, which thank God this comes with extra features. <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine them. Really, I'd be pissed if they hadn't had bonus features on this thing. Uh, when they're talking about the making of, like, yeah, we like every night you you get in bed and within five minutes one of the cats would come and sleep, get in the bed with you. Yeah. So you'd like be there and a fucking full size like African lion crawls into bed next uh, next to you and that was normal. That was these people's childhood. Yeah, but so was uh, Melanie Griffith nearly getting her eyeball fucking What's ripped funny out. Is they didn't have any problems until the actual filming. Mm. They like apparently like everything went pretty smoothly on this ranch that they own in California with all these big cats until they started making the film itself. Wait, you was mean that wasn't Africa? Goal. No, it oh. was in L.A. Uh, or outside, just outside of L.A. Where uh, the idea is it's supposed to be in Africa where uh, uh, Noel Marshall lives with all these animals, uh, including some elephants who are even more vicious than the lions are. Who are really bastards of, of yeah, creatures. Yeah. Uh, and like he's trying to convince these people basically that you guys shouldn't be hunting these things that we need to preserve them which is the whole point of this thing is they had this preservation society for big yeah. cats uh, and his family comes to visit only he's gone to meet them so he's not there so they show up there and immediately are being terrorized by all these giant cats who in the premise of the film are just trying to love on them just trying to hug them and play <laughs> with them but but you know I mean if you've ever played with a, a regular sized cat picture that and you know 20 times the size and yeah. you realize that would kill you. Yeah, picture that, that, that little dainty paw, except that it weighs 20 pounds now. Uh, so, that being said, over 70 members of the cast and crew were seriously injured during the production of this movie, and you see a lot of that happen on screen. Yep. <laughs> like, Melanie oh. Griffith had like something like 400 stitches in no, her face. No, seriously, yeah, she nearly lost her eye because of this movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Jan DeBont, very famous cinematographer, had was scalped by a lion. Yep. 220 stitches. Uh, Tippi Hedren had a fractured leg and had scalp wounds uh, that came from a, a, a uh, elephant bucking her off her, her, its back and then mm-hmm. being bitten on in the neck by a lion. <laughs> you're like, and that's the thing about this film. You're watching this and knowing how badly all these people got hurt, watching it all play out, and just going, why aren't you terrified? Well, some of them were, though. Like, uh, uh, what's his face? Pop's uh, buddy, who he just keeps bullying into stupid ideas. You could tell there were definitely parts where he was genuinely afraid. Oh, yeah, and it had every right to be. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I mean, this is one of those movies, you'll watch it and you'll go, like, what the fuck? And the problem is they meant it to be, like, a very family friendly Disney yeah. type film. And what you have is a horror movie that doesn't know it's a horror movie. No. No, uh, I mean that's that's the the amazing part of it, and I I do feel like the subtitle should be "White People Are Stupid." Yeah, <laughs> this is the number one example film of stupid white people ever. And at first, I was pissed off, like, okay, they're in Africa, why tigers? But then they go ahead and address it. But he brought tigers. Yeah, he brought tigers. <laughs> he brought tigers with him to Africa. Uh, 
I, like I said, in terms of like getting this on Blu-ray, picking it up, yes, you you should. Don't wait for this on streaming. Pick this up on Blu-ray because it is it. You're going to want to have answers to your questions after you watch mm-hmm. it, it's- and it provides it. There's like a 33 minute making of Roar. There's a Q and A with the cast and crew that's a, uh, about 40 minutes long. Uh, there's Tim League from the Alamo Drafthouse chain who's been really promoting this and is co-releasing it with Drafthouse Films with uh, Olive Films here has a text supplement here uh, about the film's history and reputation called The Grandeur of Roar. There's a photo gallery which actually has a lot of pretty scary behind-the-scenes shots of some of the people being brutalized. There's an audio commentary with John Marshall who is one of the the young actors in the film and Tim League. yeah, you're 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 gonna want to actually own this thing. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a spectacle. It totally is, and just a little known part of of the world, the history of <laughs> cinema that the draft house dredged up and went. You've got to be right because kidding. once you once you experience it, you think why why is this not more widely known? Yeah, exactly. All right, next up is one that is widely known, which is this year's Pixar film, or one of two Pixar films, mm-hmm. since The Good Dinosaur will be coming out soon, Inside Out. And I really find doubt that The Good Dinosaur is going to be better than this. I, you doubt? or you- I doubt that The Good Dinosaur is going to be better than this, because I think this is one of Pixar's best films. Hmm. Do you not agree? No. You do not concur? No, there was no, uh, there were no miscarriages in the first three minutes. Is, is that what you wanted? <laughs> hey, they set precedent, man. They pulled the trigger, not me. Uh, the idea is, in case you don't already know, it's this family and a little girl, and we're looking at the basic, the aspects of her personality which are anthropomorphized inside her head. There's joy, voiced by Amy Poehler, sadness, voiced by Phyllis Smith, fear, voiced by Bill Hader, anger, voiced by who else? Lewis Black. <laughs> and uh, disgust, voiced by Mindy Kaling. And it deals with she's basically uh, going to a new city and and growing just going from being a kid to a teenager and all the changing stuff and discovering boys and what have you. And inside her head, as she basically becomes bipolar, <laughs> yeah, yeah, as as uh, joy and sadness get kicked out of the control room and have to find their way across the various like other parts of the mind to get back to the control room because you don't want to let uh, anger, fear, and disgust run things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but it's pretty much it. I was like going, like, so where's the point where they start prescribing Prozac to her and it helps yeah. them they ride the magical Prozac pills back into the head? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, 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 the premise, I'm just... It was too simplified for the, for the nuances of the inner workings. Anyway, like that's I'm not gonna go down that fucking gravy train. Even though, like, why is there only one positive aspect and then the one like, oh, this is the worst? It's actually it's really good in the end. I don't know what you're saying right now. Wait, 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 wait. I can't even tell what you felt about this film from what you said. Well, so maybe because the the way that I felt about it is loose and and not the control room. I'm still confused. Well, it was it was a part of the movie, so you shouldn't be. No, I, uh, mm, I it was very by the my biggest problem, honestly, was Pixar's done a lot of good stuff, and they've got a really good name going for them. I think they can stop using super famous people as voice actors. Because at this point, it, it, it was only distracting to me. Oh, see, I didn't even, except for Lewis Black, there was nobody whose voice was kept making me see their face. You know well, what I mean? Well, fucking Mr. Peanut is fear. 
Yeah, but I still was like, I guess it's his voice isn't distinctive enough that I went like I kept picturing Bill Hader. No, I was I was I was just picking out people left and right. Whereas, whereas like, Fear actually looks like Louis Black, so I didn't have a problem with that. Well, like, like I was happy that Paula Poundstone got some work. You know, she's going to yeah. get some sweet residuals. <laughs> uh, yeah, she's in this. Bobby Moynihan is in this. Kyle McLaughlin is in this. Diane Lane, Richard Kind, uh, 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 Frank Oz, mm-hmm. <laughs> Flea. John Ratzenberger, who, of course, is in every single Pixar film. Yeah, I don't know what you mean. <laughs> That's pretty good. Uh, Rashida Jones. Uh, I don't know. For me, this is one of the best things they've ever done, and partially that's because I thought it really transcended the simplicity of most Pixar films. I thought it actually, when they go out into the mind and they start dealing with like all these aspects of the unconscious, a lot of that is pretty, like, like it's nice allegories for some pretty complex stuff. You know, where I was like, oh, you're actually discussing some pretty complicated ideas and making it simple in a really kind of beautiful way. You mean like how she's a hermaphrodite? No. <laughs> no, no, think about it, because she's got male and female aspects in her, well, but whenever does. they go into anybody else's, they're all one gender. That's true. I didn't think about that in the other people's nah. heads. But, but uh, I mean, that no, see, that doesn't it. make sense for everybody else. Everybody else is like a misogynist or something. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Because uh, I got some anima in here. Is all Look, I'm man, I'm just saying Bing Bong didn't have to die. I'm sorry? Oh. What? Don't say that out loud. <laughs> I was, sorry. No, that, that, was, that was genuine. I didn't mean to say that, but it, that was the one part I really didn't like. All right. So we differ on this one, then? Yeah, I would say so. Uh, well, for me, this is my pick of the week, personally. Um, okay. Well, I don't know what yours is. I mean, we haven't done our last movie yet. but That's true. We haven't. Uh, but the one thing I didn't like is the Blu-ray release of this has... Both, first off, the short film before this, Lava, I think is one of the weakest of the Pixar short shorts. Yeah. It's like, okay, this is just too simple. I didn't really get anything from it. Um, I was actually mildly annoyed by it, even. Did it, did it uh, make you miss Tomater? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then the new one, which is like, like uh, that they have on here, which is basically another short in the world of Inside Out, which is her first date with a boy, is super lame. Mm-hmm. It's like not funny, and it's about the dad and the boy connecting over ACDC, which are like, does Disney own ACDC? They might. Uh, I was like, because that's what it felt like. It felt like, oh yeah, and we want to sell some old ACDC. Just records. check what they don't own. It's a lot quicker. <laughs> I know. Right? Uh, where I was like, yeah, not the greatest bonus, like like what you actually want for the super bonus features from a Pixar film. I mean, it's got all the standard stuff. Here's how we animated. Here's us talking to the writers. Okay, that's fine. But I. I you know, you look forward to the new short from the world of, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, there's not much going on there. But I, I don't know. Personally, it's one of my favorites. Our last film today, outside of our giveaway, is The Final Girls. That's right. It's appropriate. The Final Review, The Final Girls. It works out. It checks out. Uh, I enjoyed the crap out of this little meta horror film. Yes. Um, their horror comedies can be, or tend to be more missed than hit. And there's a lot that I like despite being more missed than hit. And this is definitely one that falls more on the hit side. Yeah. It's it's not at the level of Tucker and Dale versus Evil. No, or no. Or Cabin in the Woods. I mean, well, Tucker and Dale is a new new fucking benchmark. Oh, yeah. No, that's like one of the new classics. No question. Uh, but The Final Girls, although I think it's going to be a little too on the nose for some people with this mm-hmm. comedy... I found to be really funny directly taking on the slasher films of the 80s with a, <laughs> a very funny, almost sitcom-y type format. Yeah. Um, Thaisa Far- uh, Farmiga plays 
uh, a girl who is going with her friends to see a slasher film called from 1986 called Camp Bloodbath, now in an anniversary edition. And one of the reasons she's going, she hasn't seen it since forever, and her mother, who's now dead, played by Malin Ackerman, was the lead hey, screen spoilers. from it. No, they say that right in the beginning. <laughs> she's, they tell you right off the bat that uh, it's three years after she's died, uh, and she's there with her, her best friend, played by uh, Aaliyah Shockett, uh from, from uh, um, Arrested Development. And a guy she's crushing on, played by Alexander Ludwig, and uh, her stepbrother, played by Thomas Middleditch, who's like Who's the the horror super fan guy? He's, mm. he's the character from Scream who knows every detail about horror films yes. and is super obsessed with this film in particular. And basically, they're seeing the film when a fire breaks out and somehow they get transported. Don't worry about it. They get transported <laughs> into the movie itself. Only it's one of those if they don't live through the if they don't do the right things to keep going with the plot of the movie, it'll just go back and do it again. Yeah. Like they're sitting by the side of the road and the van comes by at the beginning of the movie with all of them and the van's like, get people in the van, clear your mom. Hey, you guys want to ride? They're like, uh, no. And five minutes later, the van comes back and it just, it'll keep repeating. Well, 90 minutes later. Right. So they realize they have to more or less follow the plot of the film or they're not, or they're going to be stuck in this world. And that leads to great moments of hilarity. Yeah. I, uh, I really like Thomas Middleditch, and I just kind of wish there was a little bit more of him. Um, yeah, I think he's he is really good in this, but I thought everybody was pretty good in this. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Even Malin Ackerman, who normally annoys the shit out of me, <laughs> is actually kind of perfectly cast for this, where she's supposed to be playing this like very shallow teenager mm-hmm. type, and she ends up becoming kind of self-aware during the film and she does a great job sort of transitioning between this character she was playing and who she is to becoming more than that uh, towards the end of the film that I actually the, the heart of this film as it were actually works yeah. which is something you can't hand to most films of this type no no <laughs> although the highlight of this whole film is when they go into a flashback sequence <laughs> by far <laughs> yeah <laughs> it was like that was pretty fucking clever yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, visually, it was it was kind of weird for me. Uh, not 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 like uh, what they did, but just the the look of it. There was just something that was a bit grating to me. What do you mean? Some something just about the visual quality of like the tone of it. Uh-huh. Uh, just visually, but, but but I'm not talking about the set pieces or the effects or anything like that. I'm just talking about like the, the actual like color temperature of it. Just oh yeah, some, it was really bright. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was like, I don't know. Uh, which I wonder if was meant to to specifically contrast with uh, the real world scenes, which aren't as Technicolor, and right. the flashback scenes. Well, like, like maybe they're, they're they're trying to reproduce a, a little hint of VHS, which is totally possible. Yeah, um, but that that's my complaint, you know. So yeah, such as it is. <laughs> so yeah, not really a complaint. A uh, lot of bonus features on here too. Two different commentaries, a bunch of deleted, extended, and alternate scenes. Uh, stuff on previs animation, uh, visual effects progression reel, director's shooting notes that you can w- look at on your computer. So altogether, they put a, together a pretty solid package for one of the better of the meta horror comedies mm-hmm. to come out. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, so we're at the end of the show, which means you have to give me what your pick of the week is at this point. Oh, it's absolutely Roar. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, there's no way it's not Roar. <laughs> there's no way it's not Roar. All right, fair enough. Uh, so that brings us to our final thing that we have to do before we finish, which is giveaway. Here, take it. 
Uh, and the giveaway for this week, y'all are going to be excited. It's the Blu-ray of Aladdin. That's right. We have the Blu-ray for Aladdin to give away for I'm you. holding it up right now for you guys Can at you see home. it? Can you see it? It's right there. I'm it's doing all hand sh- motions. It's all shiny. It's got the slip cover. It comes with the digital code and everything. Tons of new bonus features. This is the first time Aladdin has ever been out on Blu-ray. Uh, we're super excited to have this for you this week for the prize. And tell them what they need to do to win it, Joe. Mm, I was going to go with... Yeah, no, I was going to go with the Robin Williams joke, but I, it's too soon. It's too I'm soon. I'm not sure. I think Robin Williams would approve. Okay. Uh, give us your best uh, Robin Williams cocaine joke. Two lines or less. <laughs> but that is a Robin Williams <laughs> Well, I got him started. <laughs> Jesus Christ. People will be scared to tweet anything, which is funny because a lot of people will want this anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. So, yeah. Okay, go ahead. Do that. The most least scared guy wins, I guess. Uh, that's it. Uh, tweet us at one of us net on Twitter uh, with the hashtag Aladdin giveaway, and uh, you can win Aladdin on Blu-ray. Yes, you can. Well, thank you for joining me, Joe. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, this is one of these crowded weeks. We're going to have two digital noises this week as well. Ooh. I believe tomorrow, Brian and Johnny Neal's digital noise is up, assuming we do things that way and something hasn't changed before then. But uh, join us again, and Joe and I will be back in another three weeks, I believe, or another two weeks, something like that. We'll be here, folks. Don't worry. We'll be here. Next week is Richard and Marco again with a bunch of stuff, and uh, until then... No release is too big, no release is too small. From Criterion to Catastrophe, we review them all.